Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. This is your DC Spotlight for the week of October 26, 2021. Rocky and I are going to be breaking down the books that came out this week. There's like 14 or 15, so pretty standard uh, week of DC. Although I will say that it seems like with next week, things are going to start slowing down. We already saw last week some Image titles and some Marvel titles. If you listen to our uh, usual Wednesday New Comic Book Day episode, you'll know that a few of those titles got pushed back to this week. We've already heard Action Comics is being delayed a, a couple weeks. So there's a paper shortage going on right now. Like there were people talking <laughs> in Europe over the weekend that were saying basically if if it hasn't been printed already, like as far as books or magazines or whatever, if it hasn't been printed already, there's going to be no more printing. None of the printing presses in Europe are going to run for the rest of the year because they simply don't have the paper. So it's not a good situation. So how it's going to affect the comic book industry, you know, I guess we're going to see. Um, I, I did see an interesting kind of graphic or meme over the weekend, and it it said uh, something like, you know, you will never stop me. <laughs> and then it it had like a picture of, of uh, Chris Hemsworth Thor, and he was labeled the collapse of Diamond. Uh, and his response was, I, I may not stop you, but this might. And then the picture below that was a picture of this mountain exploding and it said paper shortage 2021. So yeah, the, the, the distribute, uh, distribution challenges and the pandemic and pencils down and all that didn't hurt the industry. Um, you know, we heard of a lot of retailers having banner years, certainly back issues spiked because people were at home and needed something to spend their money on. And yeah, it's been great. Like the demise of comics was, you know, when the, the pandemic first hit, everybody was worried about the industry. Oh, how's it going to survive? Diamond shutting down, doom and gloom. And that wasn't the reality. The reality was comic book retailers did really, really well. Um, but I don't I don't see how they survive a paper shortage. Like if they don't have product to sell, yeah, that, that's a big problem. Um, and even if they have product to sell, I mean, Image Comics is not doing second or third or fourth printings. And that seems to be almost the lifeblood of Image Comics in the last six months because the retailers aren't don't seem to be very good at being able to figure out, you know, what's going to sell and what what isn't. And uh, I can't blame them because there's so many different types of independent comic books out there. So it's going to be a struggle for, for retailers and it might be make for an interesting speculation market anyway. Yeah, it's it, you're right. I mean, there's so much product out there. They never know what's going to hit. They've been hedging their bets. They may have to take a chance on some things now. And yeah, there may be there may be books that people just can't get, which could drive up scarcity. But, you know, I've talked for a long time about I think the future of comics is digital because not only do you not pay for the, the printing, and if you're not printing the comics, it doesn't matter if there's paper or not, but you're not paying to have these books shipped from Canada to the U.S. or from, you know, China or, or wherever they're being printed, right? Um, you don't have to pay that cost. And I find it ridiculous that day and date comics digitally cost the same. I get why you do it, right? You don't want to sell a, a comic book that I can walk into the comic shop and buy for $4. If I can get it for 99 cents digitally, I might just do that. You don't want to hamstring the retailers. So they come out and they're the same price, but they, they really shouldn't be because you're not paying for printing. You're not paying for distribution. They should be cheaper. And and they are, but it's weeks later, they go down to that 99 cent price tag. So I, I do wonder if this paper shortage continues into the next year whether you might not see an increase in the number of titles that are digital first. And then if, and, and hopefully when the paper shortage is over, you might see some of these comics come back into, into print. So I, I guess we'll wait and see, but in the meantime, 
if we do cover things that end up not coming out the following day or the day that the uh, episode is released, we apologize. You know, we don't always know when things are getting delayed. We get sent the files with the date they're supposed to be released and, you know, we've read them and we're going to talk about them. They may not always be there. So apologies if that's the case, uh, if we put something out there and say, hey, it's going to be out. And we talked about it, we read it, and then it's not actually out. It's just uh, kind of the nature of the beast. So let's go ahead and dive into the first book. Uh, it's Batman Fortnite Foundation number one. It's from writers Scott Snyder and Christos Gage with Donald Mustard. The art is by Joshua Hickson, colors by Roman Stevens, lettered by Anne World Designs. Uh, this is the follow-up to the uh, Batman Fortnite zero-point storyline that we had earlier this year that was a real big success crossing over Fortnite and uh, the DC Comics user universe. A lot of that had to do with the fact that there were codes in the book that let you get special uh, skins or things in the game. I, I don't know that much about the game. I didn't think there was much story or backstory or lore to do with Fortnite, but it seems like with this Donald Mustard, who's one of the, the lead developers of the game, uh, there's more to the backstory of, of what's going on in Fortnite than I realized. And Scott Snyder's sort of playing into that and, of course, bringing one of his most popular creations from the last few years, uh, the Batman Who Laughs. And uh, it's interesting. It's not like this story actually you know, finishes off. It's not like a one shot where it, it finishes the story. It actually goes the other direction and sets up more to come. I mean, the way that the Fortnite zero point ended, it was a satisfying conclusion, but it hinted at more things to come. And then we sort of skip ahead in this one and we see that Lex Luthor has heard about the zero point. He sees it as a, a, a possible source of power uh, or, or something that he wants to control he recruits a couple of uh, or a lot of other villains who uh, they're all trying to access this portal that's opened in Metropolis. Last time it was Gotham City. This time there's a portal in Metropolis. And Luther's trying to get to the zero point, get through that that rift in, in um, reality in Metropolis to get to the zero point. Because, again, he thinks it's um, a source of power. Meanwhile, there's a, another character, the Foundation. And, again, I guess he's from Fortnite. I guess he's uh, some lower tight end. I don't play the video game. I don't know. Uh, but he ends up teaming up with Batman to stop Luthor. Um, but unfortunately, the Batman who laughs is doing what he does best. He he's sort of pulling the strings, and we don't being know for annoying. Sure. Yeah, yeah, that too. Uh, we don't know for sure, but it seems like he set Luthor up as a distraction. He makes it through the portal. So does Foundation. Foundation thinks that he stops the Batman who laughs, but come to find out, uh, that's not the case. So this certainly sets up more to come, more going forward. And what I find really the most interesting about it is not only does it set up potential for more of this DC Fortnite crossover, it it sort of sets up some big potential just with the Batman who laughs and DC in general because what we're talking about, what they're explaining, this, what they explain uh, the zero point as is sort of the the Big Bang that started not just the DC universe or the DC multiverse or the DC omniverse. But all omniverses, all omniverses came out of this. There are multiple, you know, first it was just the DC universe and it was the DC multiverse and it was the DC omniverse. And now we're being told there's multiple omniverses. So I guess when you think about it in terms of reality, you could say, well, there's a Star Trek omniverse. There's a Star Wars omniverse. There's a Marvel omniverse. There's a DC omniverse. There's any number of infinite number of omniverses. And now if the Batman who laughs gets access to zero point, he could potentially infect all the omniverses and that's what he's after. So 
Scott Snyder, I don't know, hubris or just thought it was a cool idea, has set up this story in such a way that the Batman Who Laughs is the potentially the most powerful and prevalent, as well as annoying, character in all of fiction. He could show up anywhere. He could show up in a Sherlock Holmes book. He could show up in a Netflix show. He could show up anywhere, right? And the, the yeah. explanation could be, well, he got access to the zero point. He can go anywhere in any fictional you know, universe ever. I'm sure DC wouldn't allow that, uh, but it's kind of interesting. So I thought this was, uh, it was pretty solid for as much as I don't care for the Batman who, who laughs and I wish he would go away forever. Never have liked him. I mean, he's the Joker, Batman mashup. And if there's ever two characters that were overused for the last, I don't know, decade, it's those two. So uh, anyway, I thought it was solid. If I have any complaint, it's that, and I've said this before about Joshua Hickson's art. I don't think he's a, I don't think he's a, a superhero artist. I loved his uh, Shanghai Red series that he did um, not too long ago at Image. He's got really moody art. I think it suits a story like that. That was about pirates or crime noir because his stuff's very moody or uh, horror. I think he'd be very good at. But for me, uh, his style just isn't quite clean enough for superhero stuff. It ends up looking a little muddy. That being said, technically... He's a great visual storyteller and, you know, the art is very kinetic and I thought he did a really, really good job. I just, I think the impact of the story would have been a little more dynamic uh, and felt a little more traditionally superhero if there was a different artist. One of maybe one of the art, maybe Riley Brown who did the uh, regular series. So anyway, I thought, I thought this was pretty solid. I, I didn't expect it to like it as much as I did. And like I said, it sets up potential for plenty more Fortnite DC uh, crossovers if they if they want to do them. So what did you think, Rocky? Yeah, it's it's like uh, it's setting up its own individual crisis. This is sort of like the uh, crisis on a crisis on infinite earths, but for the for the gaming industry or for for the for the guys that play the video games. Uh, I mean, I I'm not a big fan of the Batman who laughs, but you know I I. I've, openly admit let's face it he's a popular character death metal was a popular series it, it sold well and probably people were attracted to death metal as opposed to you know because it, it attracted people that didn't always read comics and it was it you know batman who laughs is a very prevalent villain and he he got a lot for two years it was only the batman who laughs he was that's why he annoyed us regular longtime dc fans because the batman who laughs was a duke ek machina he always won he never lost and even at the end at the end of death metal he kind of never really lost still really in my view but he and now he's still alive it doesn't make sense that he's still around in the continuity of the dc universe he should still be dead uh he lost he was destroyed at the end of death metal but he's back for the purposes of these video games and for for fortnite and I get it. I understand it. It's intellectual property. I, I don't like the character. I didn't. I, I still don't. Uh, I'm like you. I mean, straight up, I, I respect that Scott Snyder w was was clearly asked. to. to he was, uh, at a minimum, he's credited with being one of the writers on this particular series. And I'm glad that Batman Who Lives is going to have maybe a second life in the video games. Because I can see him being a really good bad guy for video games where there's infinite omniverses and universes. So that makes a lot of sense. So kudos to Scott Snyder to be have a successful one of his characters used for that. Um, we have uh, the Imagined Order. This imagined order is this powerhouse that creates the zero point. The idea of the zero point sort of creating this new, uh, the, you know, where, where all, many people can access it. I, obviously, it's quite interesting. The fact that 
this issue ends. It's kind of it's kind of a one shot, like you said. It's a little bit of a hybrid. Batman thinks that the Batman who laughs is in the perfect place because he's in zero point, and when you're in zero point, you lose your memory and you get caught in a perpetual time loop, and you're you keep reliving the same thing over and over again, and you keep forgetting you're in the loop. Now, but what Batman doesn't know, and what the Foundation doesn't know, is that the Batman who laughs has the has that a particular kind of metal. That is his uh, visor that makes the Batman who laughs immune to the effects of the time loop. So the Batman who laughs will remember all his lives and incarnations while in the loop. And so you know that he's that the Batman who laughs is going to live to fight another day. So for people who love this story and like the continuity in this particular universe, there's going to be, I'm sure, more stories to come. I I think the Art is a little bit jarring here. I, I I would have liked more consistency consistency to the first series. I think this is a jarring difference from the original artist. And what did you say his name was again? I forget his name. I think Riley Brown did most of the issues, but yeah. I know there was another artist that did a, a few, but I don't yeah. remember who. It was. I think this is a very jarring difference. Uh, I agree that it has good kinetic ener- energy. Uh, I mean, so uh, Joshua Hickson has good kinetic energy here, and the colors are pretty good. I just I don't know if. I just question whether fans of the original Fortnite, Batman Fortnite, coming back to here, if they're going to be maybe just a little bit, uh, uh, dare I say, disappointed. I mean, it's hard to say. Perhaps I'm, uh, perhaps that's, you know, premature for me to say, but uh, I fear that that might be a potential concern. But uh, we shall see. Yeah, you raise a good point about um, that. Be you know, Batman does mention, hey, this is a perfect place for him. He he's not the Batman who laughs is not going to be killed. He's going to keep you know, respawning each time the island resets. And so he's not going to be reincarnated, but he is not going to have his memory uh, in a way, a little bit like almost like a, a version of a phantom zone. It'd be interesting to see if more heroes try to trap powerful villains there, uh, you know, that, that need to be. So they, yeah. uh, cause it would make a good, a good prison. And the other thing you mentioned the imagined order, we don't ever find out who they really are. How meta would it be if we finally see the imagined order at some point And it's, it's Scott Snyder and Christos Gage and Donald <laughs> Mustard. <laughs> you know, they're the ones pulling the ice Pretty, yeah. would be pretty funny. That would be. Uh, anyway, on to the next book. It's Robin number seven, the final four from writer Joshua Williamson. We have art by Gleb Melnikoff and Max Dunbar. Luis Guerrero handles the colors and Troy Petrie on letters. Uh, we saw last issue the the fight on the island finally started. Um, so this issue is pretty action-packed it's basically just uh a bunch of fighting which i i suppose is what we had wanted all along and what we were hoping for um the fact that there's two artists i didn't really mind uh because gleb melnikoff's art is not necessarily the style his style is a little more loose and a little more wild and uh, maybe even a little more stylized than than what max dunbar's art is but i think dunbar does a good job of of adapting his art because I couldn't really tell. I was flipping through trying to figure out, well, which are the pages that that Dunbar did, and I, I it wasn't super obvious. I mean, there's there's one page where I'd probably say, okay, that's that's for sure Dunbar, and it's it's toward the end where uh, where Connor Hawk uh, attacks, jumps up in the air and attacks uh, Ravager. But but other than that, I, I thought they they both of them did a great job on on the art. And the colors from uh, Luis Guerrero are, are pretty solid as well. We do finally uh, learn the uh, the identity of uh, of Lady Lazarus. 
Turns out she's Raz Al Ghul's uh, or Mother Soul, I guess, uh, is what she's known as, not Lady Lazarus, but what I've always thought of her as. I guess I love the, the LL alliteration from Superman Days. But anyway, the, the woman who's in charge of the tournament, in charge of the, the island, we find out it's Raz Al Ghul's mother. So it's actually <laughs> Damien's great grandmother. And we also find out what exactly uh, is her reasoning behind the, the island and why she wants to have this tournament, why she's holding this, this tournament. Uh, at least we find out functionally why, what, what's actually behind it and what, why she's doing it, kind of her end goal, we, we don't yet know. But um, this is kind of what I always hoped the series would be all along, was just these people battling with Damien trying, to, not only fighting, but also trying to be a detective, trying to figure out you know, what's going on. I mean, the whole reason this storyline started was because he went to his mother and while he was talking to her, she got attacked, right, by the, the League of Assassins. So um, it's been a long time coming. It's been almost a year uh, that we're finally getting to the point where we, we should have and did this series need to go as long as it did. And I just haven't felt, seen or felt the value of the story that Joshua Williamson has been telling with Damien sort of vacillating. We, we talked earlier on about the first couple of issues about how it seemed like Williamson had taken – Damien back in terms of character development, only to bring him back forward now to where he's he where he kind of was before uh, Williamson picked him up. <laughs> you know, he's he's less of a brat. He's more mature. He's more likable, dare I say, as much as I'm not a fan of Damien. Um, this is a more mature Damien, a more uh, a less impulsive Damien. I'll put it that way, where he's uh, he, you know, I love the fact he's trying to solve the mystery. He's trying to use his head instead of always using his his fists and just killing people and, and being impulsive. So. Uh, the story's heading in the right direction, in in my opinion. But again, I don't think it should have taken that long to get there. And the other thing is, how much legs is this series going to have? Like once we find out, we've already found out who Mother Soul is and, and why the tournament needs to take place and why it has to happen on this island. I can't imagine it's more than one or two more issues before we find out her end game, why she's doing this, what she's growing or trying to hatch on the island. Uh, and at that point, what? I mean, does the series pivot completely away from this? Um, it's introduced some interesting characters in, in terms of flatline. And um, I wouldn't go so far <laughs> as to say the other, uh, the other big character that, that Damien fights here is, uh, is interesting, Respawn, especially in terms of the, uh, the look. I know Rocky's extremely derivative, uh, but we, we do get a little <laughs> bit of a hint that there's a, a mystery about who Respawn might be. Uh, I wonder if Respawn might not be Ravager's brother, not not uh, not Jericho, but the other Slade brother. Uh, I can't think of what his name is, but because we do see when the mask starts to come up a little bit, he's got the white hair. Um, but clearly, there's more to Respawn than uh, than meets the eye, and I would be happy if we find out Respawn is a um, either a new character or at least a character we already know just so this identity of respawn goes and the costume goes away because uh, I agree with Rocky. It's so <laughs> derivative. And so it just, it feels lazy. Like, like, let me come up with a character. Let me come up with like the, let me put the least amount of effort forward to come up with this character. We'll call him respawn. He'll look like a cross between Deadpool and Deathstroke and he'll spout out cliches. Like, nothing original about the character at all, but it'll make more sense if he is somebody related to Deathstroke. Um, and they didn't put much effort because it was, the character was only going to exist for, you know, a few short issues of, of Robin. So 
Uh, all in all, the series is on an upswing. I did enjoy this issue, uh, and I thought the the art was some of the best that we've had in the series so far. So, uh, what do you think of uh, of Robin number seven, Rocky? I, you know what, I, I, I oh my god, I'm, I, I, it kind of it rubbed me the wrong way a little bit. Although on the surface, I got to tell you, it's it's very straightforward. I I, I feel like it's a very one dimensional tale. It. It, mm-hmm. I don't really find this to be particularly surprising. I don't find it to be particularly interesting. And I this this stumbles upon a theme that death is has no meaning in the DC universe. And this is something that we're going to be talking. I'm going to be talking about more. We both are going to be talking about more. Death has no meaning in the DC universe with uh, with uh, Task Force Z, the Lazarus resin, uh, with uh, Lazarus pits here on Lazarus Island, the legal Lazarus. I'm I'm. I'm one, you know, in the Suicide Squad, Lazarus Resin using to resurrect dead Suicide Squad members. It seems to me that there's no death in the DC universe anymore. All you got to do is, uh, you know, have a have a little bit of silly putty. I mean, Lazarus Resin in your in your bat utility belt, and boom, you can die and not a big problem. Just put a little Lazarus Resin on your face, and boom, you're back to the land of the living. Uh, this the the Lazarus pits on this island where this tournament is taking place in the pages here of Robin. Uh, it's leaked into the island itself, and it feeds off the violence of these tournaments. So there's a lot of questions. If this island stays alive from all the deaths and all these fights, why does why do they only have these tournaments once every hundred years? Why not have them all the time to keep feeding the island? Also, as you alluded to, uh, Jace, apparently this tournament is is feeding the island, and the the island feeds off the violence of the tournament. Because something is growing on the island, we don't know what it is. Mother Soul, uh, the I guess the the great grand grandmother of uh, of Damien, won't say what's really going on on the island. But the winner of the tournament still gets eternal life. But who cares if you have eternal life if you have Lazarus resin? I mean, you you everybody has Lazarus life. It's no longer special. Everybody has access to a Lazarus to Lazarus resin, more or less, don't they? I mean, it seems. We're going to be talking about other titles this week uh, in in today's review where Lazarus Resin seems to be the in thing now. And maybe it's just the, all these storylines are intersecting at the same time. But I really hope that death in the DC Universe doesn't become as meaningless as it means in Jonathan Hickman's X-Men. Uh, now, and I just throw that out there. But I won't add to uh, what, uh, the storyline. Uh, I, I, I won't ruin... I ruin anything other than the fact that this is a lot of fun. They're, they're, the, the fight scenes here are better than in last issue. I enjoyed the fight scenes a little bit more. They were better choreographed. I enjoyed it more. I enjoyed the dialogue more. And I enjoyed at the end, of course, we get down to the this this particular issue is the final four. We get down to the final two by the end of this issue. It is a lot of fun, and I think people will have fun with it. I think story-wise, it's a little, uh, it's a little simplistic. But again, I will give Joshua Williamson some kudos because it is fun. And I just, I'm hope I'm being a little bit paranoid when I when I say that I want death to still have some meaning in the DC universe, but it it seems to be increasingly unlikely. But uh, yeah, and the art was pretty good. Melnikov and uh, Dunbar, I I couldn't tell the difference between their art either. So overall, it was not bad, and, and I I got mixed feelings about this issue, and I I failed to articulate adequately why. <laughs> no, I get I, I I agree with you. It is somewhat simplistic, and and I. And again, it's where it should have gotten to all along. And if seven issues in, we should be should be over. Actually, the story arc should be over. <laughs> um, and it should have had plenty of time to develop and add complexity. So 
I don't know, maybe that's why I liked it, just because I'm finally getting what I sort of expected. And again, we're getting back to a more likable Damien, so uh, that's probably why what I enjoyed about it. But uh, anyway, let's move on. Aquaman Green Arrow Deep Target number one. This is a seven-issue mini. It's written by Brandon Thomas. We have art by Ronan Cliquet. Ulysses Ariola does the colors. Josh Reed on letters. Um, yeah, this one's a weird one, and not at all what I expected. I, I I don't remember reading the solicits for this, and I certainly didn't know it was going to be some kind of alternate history. But uh, yeah, pretty interesting. Almost reminded me of Tankers uh, a little bit from Bad Idea. But what did you think, Rocky? Uh, well, sorry here. Yeah, this is uh, this was really unexpected. Uh, this one threw me, and you know, it actually reminds me. I it, it's kind of sad that. I got to get a reminder like this, how good it is not to have storylines spoiled because so often I know you and I both, because we read future solicits, we know what's coming and we have some idea what the storyline is. I really like the fact that this, the entire premise of this story, I had no idea what it was. And I felt a genuine sense of surprise. I was <laughs> uh, Arthur Curry and Oliver Queen. It never occurred to me before how much they look alike. <laughs> Really, in many ways, you know, but Oliver Queen has a, has a slightly different kind of beard, a pointed beard. He's more Robin Hoodie than, than Aquaman. But it never occurred to me how, how much Arthur Curry and Oliver Queen look alike until suddenly we have this sort of like there, there's a time mix up here. There's a time travel mix up. Time has been changed and Oliver Queen and Arthur Curry have switched places. So we got Oliver Curry and Arthur Queen <laughs> and... This this is a very odd mix mix up. It, it it has some scientists a couple two years ago experimenting trying to transport living tissue from the time of the dinosaurs into the present. So they're experimenting with time travel with living tissue, and they perfect that process. And then it that those scenes are juxtaposed in the present with an Oliver, I guess an, an Oliver Curry, uh, an who is we thought we think is Aquaman is actually Green Arrow. They, they've switched bodies or they switched legacies. Oliver, what we think of as Oliver Queen is ruler of Atlantis. And who we, what we think of as Aquaman is essentially the Green Arrow. And it's really weird. This is a different time, yet it takes place presumably in the same continuity as the mainstream DC universe. Yet even Atlantis is different because in the mainstream DC universe, Atlantis is no longer a monarchy. It's a democracy. And Arthur, and, and Arthur Curry is not the king of Atlantis. But yet in this continuity, in this time has been changed such that, uh, I guess, Oliver Curry <laughs> is the ruler of Atlantis. And this, it's very interesting. It's, it poses a lot of questions, it, uh, but in a good way. I love the art here. The art, you know, I thought was very well done, especially when it shows... I mean, it tricked me. I was genuinely tricked. I thought, oh my God, I thought for sure that was Arthur. I thought that was, for sure that was Green Arrow and that was Aquaman. But no, I was wrong. And the reveal uh, was, was just excellent where there's a wonderful page where Aquaman dresses Green Arrow, you know, points, you know, pulls back the bow to shoot, you know, Aquaman on the throne only to discover. And it's so obvious then you can see the differences between the two. I thought it was very well artistically laid. In the hands of the wrong artist, this story would not have worked. It, this wouldn't have had the impact that it did. So I thought it worked really well. And there's a mystery as to the time travel, as to who this uh, individual is. Oh, and my uh, my daughter wants to kiss me goodnight. And, uh, <laughs> okay, 
just a quick kiss goodnight. Good night. <laughs> <laughs> As a pleasant distraction. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. but in any event, I really liked it here. I got all these questions. How did this come about? This, this, this scientist seems to have accidentally merged with some living dinosaur tissue in the past. And he's, he becomes a dinosaur creature, a, a, a dinosaur human hybrid at the end. And he seems to be recruiting these two, ver- these alternate versions of Aquaman and Green Arrow. And it's a fascinating uh, I'm I'm hooked. I'm I'm in for this. I'm in for the long haul on this story. It's 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 a great first issue to get my attention. So, what do you think? Yeah, I agree with uh, everything you said. Uh, I again, Ronan Clique, the artist, does an incredible job of uh, making it make sense. Because you're right. It, I think a less clean style could have made it muddy. Could have made it more confusing. Uh, but I'll give a lot of uh, props to Brandon Thomas as well because. Despite the fact that, and and we never know how much um, you know input, how how full of a script Thomas was giving to Cliquet, but uh, just in terms of of artistically and visually how the those sequences are set up, there's so many great sequences in this book uh, when uh, Arthur Queen does finally get to to Atlantis, and we all assume that it's Oliver Queen, that it's Green Arrow, because at this point we don't realize that they've sort of switched bodies, that their their histories have become. Uh, kind of mashed up and it's just a great sequence a, a great use of shadow and and a great build to that that reveal but it's not just that sequence there, there's a sequence early on with the 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 scientist slash general uh who is conducting these experiments who, who apparently seems to be the one who's uh who's in charge where once a satellite go, loses line of sight on a particular spot they you know, all these people come running out of the, the tree line and they set up this sort of time travel platform that pulls a, a living dinosaur from the past. And then they all run in and break it all down before uh, the satellite can come over and um, and give them access uh, or, or see what, you know, what was done. So this General Anderton, he's, he's the one who seems to be in charge of this project that then at some point later, almost uh, like a scene out of the fly when he's in the past and he's pulled forward into the future they don't realize that a dinosaur comes along with them and then apparently when he does reappear in the present just like the fly he's been kind of merged with that dinosaur at least yeah. that's what we're led to believe on the the final reveal where he's this sort of dinosaur man hybrid so yeah just a cool idea and if it is tied in with the actual uh regular dc continuity that, that would be it would still make sense because again Clearly, you're playing with time travel, and if you go back and change one little thing, butterfly effect, and you know maybe in this particular timeline, because of the changes, the monarchy in Atlantis does still uh, exist. But it doesn't have to, um, which is great, because this is a standalone uh, miniseries that you can probably read on its own. You don't need to know anything that's going on in the pages of Justice League or Checkmate with Green Arrow or, or uh, Aquaman Becoming or any anything like that. You can just read it on its own and... So uh, I think Brandon Thomas is getting the freedom to just kind of tell the story he wants to tell. I mean, I was kind of surprised when I heard this was coming out. I'm like, wait, we have Aquaman becoming like of all of all the characters to team up. I don't usually think of, you know, Green Arrow and Aquaman as like buddy, buddy friends. What, you know, what the heck is this? And like Rocky said, I, I'm glad that I I didn't pay too much attention or read too much into what this was going to be. I, I just had absolutely no idea because I like the fact that this is feels new, feels surprising. Uh, we need more of that. 
uh, in the DC universe. So definitely recommend it. Uh, okay, up next we have Harley Quinn Fear State Part 2, uh, written by Stephanie Phillips, Riley Rosmo on art, Yvonne Placenti on colors, Darren Ben on letters. Um, I don't really have that much to say about this. Uh, I do. There, there's a couple of really great moments, um, particularly with Kevin when he tries to uh, <clears throat> rescue this woman who's being uh, attacked out in the, the city of Gotham. Um, I thought that that worked really well. Her, her name is Sam. Uh, and then there's a couple of a couple of pretty good quotes from from Harley, um, you know, and talking about choosing to do better today than yesterday, or, or actually uh, Kevin is say, saying the same thing. He, he feels inspired by Harley. Uh, where it falls down for me, unfortunately, is the art. You know, everybody knows I'm not a big fan of Rosmo's art, but for the most part, it, it sort of works for Harley. But I think when Stephanie Phillips is trying to get as emotional as she is in this issue and, and kind of uh, be really genuine, that this style of art doesn't really lend itself to that. And I also didn't really, although Poison Ivy shows up here, and we know that the, the Harley Quinn Fear State stuff is supposed to explain what Ivy's role is in Fear State and get Ivy back to some sort of status quo. It doesn't really seem to be focusing on that very much so yeah it wasn't the best wasn't the best issue uh yeah for me and, so, and I, I don't know so yeah, i i yeah i agree with you and I, I do think i'm gonna give i will cut stephanie phillips a little bit of slack here because she's she's got no choice she has to relate this back into fear state and so there there was a significant part of this issue where i thought she she had to explain she basically, there was like a two-page spread where she had to explain Fear State, how Harley got where she's got. And she tried to reconcile her storyline with Harley into the existing Fear State storyline with Batman. And uh, so a number of things happen in this issue. Her her sidekick, Kevin, sort of meets his own, uh, another woman named Sam. And I have a feeling that the, her sidekick, Kevin, is going to end up with this woman, Sam. And he they end up basically fighting members of the, you know, uh, the forces of the magistrate. Meanwhile, the uh, Hugo Strange, who Harley has battled since issue one, along with Keepsake, Hugo Strange is dressed up like Batman, and Hugo Strange wants to destroy all the evidence that he, he's been, that's accumulated in his tower. In, in So the, the, the tower that Hugo Strange is in, in this issue, he actually set, he puts it on fire. And it's that same tower that becomes Arkham Tower that Marinagano in in Detective Comics this week that we're going to review that ultimately is converted into the new Arkham Tower because Arkham Asylum is was destroyed in AD. So Hugo Strange destroys his headquarters wanting to destroy the evidence where he sort of experimented on all the clowns that he was competing with 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 Harley throughout this particular Harley Quinn series and so Kevin and Sam are going to try to prevent that fire from accumulating. Meanwhile, Harley is with Ivy, with also Catwoman and the Gardener as they try to prepare for the attack of the magistrate forces that we see taking place fully in the pages of Batman. So in the midst of all that, <laughs> I think that Stephanie Phillips did a good job trying to explain all that. Unfortunately, for, uh, for readers that are just coming on board, I think that might be a little bit much. 
Now, there is some fun to be had here. There is, uh, Keepsake introduces us to his caucus of corruption, his group of misfits, the sage, swine, sword lady, polyphonist, Blaine, exclamation, fellow frigid. So there's all these crazy new characters, but unfortunately they have nothing to do in this issue other than fight Catwoman, Harley, and <laughs> Poison Ivy, and the gardener, and nothing really comes of it, but... You can tell uh, you can tell Riley Rosmo is having fun, you know, uh, with his own particular stylistic approach to his uh, illustrations. It's it does it, if you've been with Harley this far up to this eighth issue, there, there is something to enjoy. There, there is some nice payoff here because there is synchronicity between this and Fear State. And Stephanie Phillips did do a good job uh, through an interesting two page spread where Harley sort of summarizes what's going on. Uh, I also want to give a shout out to Kevin and uh, Riley Rosmo, the, the the design for Kevin's new suit. He, he, you know, as a Canadian, I love a good, I, I love a, a hockey se- a hockey uniform, even if it's as as bad as uh, as the one that Riley Rosmo drew for Kevin. It is kind of funny. It's all pink, and he's got a hockey stick, so it can't be that bad. But uh, that's the Canadian in me. But overall, this is a fun issue. But if you're just coming on board for the first time in this issue, you're probably going to be a little bit lost. But I, I know that Stephanie Phillips and Riley Rousema had some fun here. But I can definitely see the biggest thing to take away here is this is where this is the issue where Hugo Strange burns down his headquarters to destroy the evidence, and it's ultimately Hugo Strange's tower that will become Arkham Tower in the pages of Detective Comics this week. <laughs> Did you yeah, get all that? Which whole, <laughs> yeah, which is a whole nother thing based on you know what we know of uh, of James Tynan and what he had first proposed. For his Batman run, so it feels like opportunities lost. But yeah, we'll talk about that when Detective rolls around. But uh, yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I don't blame Stephanie Phillips. I think she's super talented and she's doing the best she can. Uh, but again, I just feel like most of the time, if you're just doing happy-go-lucky Harley stories, that Rosmo's art will will work for that. But when you're trying to do something, I think that is a little more serious, has a little more weight. His art style just doesn't lend itself to that. But there's always a few great lines, like I said, with Kevin talking about being better than the day before. And Harley's got a great line in here where she talks about the Venn diagram of supervillains and narcissists is basically just a circle, which I thought was <laughs> that's just a great line and wholly accurate when it comes to pretty much all DC villains, but particularly Batman villains. So, yeah. Uh, all right. Up next, we have uh, Wonder Woman Black and Gold number five. Uh, I think this is the last issue of, of this. And I hope... You know, it sounds like a broken record here, but I hope this is the last of these limited color palette series for a while. Not that because I don't like them, but I just they're good in small doses. And we we just had a you know a most recent volume of Batman Black and White, followed by a Superman Red and Blue, and now this Wonder Woman Black and Gold. And I'm glad that Wonder Woman you know got a chance. She's in my mind just as important as uh, Batman and Superman. But en- enough of these, please. Uh, but anyway, there's uh, there's five <laughs> stories here. We have Hell's a Popping. Uh, that's all one word uh, by story and words by Peter J. Tomasi. Art is by Christian Alame. Colors by John Kalis and lettered by Rob Lee. And we have Beyond the Horizon written and drawn by Sonia Anwar, lettered by Pat Brosso. <laughs> How the Wonder Woman was brought low by a mouse but captured the stars. Written by Kurt Busick. <laughs> art by Benjamin Dewey, lettered by Richard Starkings. Feet of Clay written by Josie Campbell. Art by Carlos Deanda, lettered by Wes Abbott. And finally, Mem- Memories of Hator, written and drawn by Trung Li Nguyen, uh, lettered by Rob Lee. So uh, 
hard for me to pick a favorite here. I, th- I thought they were all pretty solid. Um, the first one, Hell's a Popping, Peter J. Tomasi. Fantastic art by Christian Alamate. Just oh. fantastic. A little bit of a, a Frank Cho vibe. But yeah. this is maybe the, out of all the, the Wonder Woman black and gold stories that we've read so far, uh, and it's again, I didn't go back and look at all of them, but this one for me is the one where the limited color palette works the best. Um, and maybe it's because he uses that gold, you know, sometimes it's super yellow, sometimes it's more reddish. Um, and I just thought that it worked fantastically. The, the story itself isn't anything groundbreaking. Basically the Amazon armor, uh, or armor to the gods, Hephaestus is, is captured and taking down, taken down to hell and is being forced to, to make weapons for Hades armies. And Wonder Woman goes to rescue him. So in terms of that, it's, it's a very straightforward story. It's not anything groundbreaking, but the art is, is fantastic. The detail, um, I thought was, was great. So, uh, any thoughts on that first story, Rocky? I, the art is absolutely fantastic. I, I mean, if they could, if, if he could, uh, what's the artist's name again? Christian Alame. Christian Alame. Amazing. I mean, I, I want him on the regular Wonder Woman title. This is incredible. If he, if he's, I don't know if he's a fast artist, but if he can maintain a monthly schedule, good man, somebody give this guy a comic book. Like, why isn't he drawing? I mean, this is just incredible. Uh, and the coloring, like I said, I agree. This is the best rendering, the best combination of, of, of utilizing the concept of Wonder Woman, you know, black and gold. This is absolutely fantastic. Like, the story is very mediocre, and but it, but at least it's action-packed and it's 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 fun. Just Wonder Woman once again rescuing the gods from their own uh, uh, from their own stupidity. But uh, yeah, but but very well done. I mean, I, I was just captivated by the art. The story didn't, you know, Peter J. Tomas was an afterthought although you know <laughs> which is rare but it's rare for for an artist to overshadow the writing of peter j tomasi but it's been done in this particular story yeah and he's he, christian alamy has done work for dc before um but yeah i can't i can't remember him ever having a regular gig but yeah it's very possible that he's not that fast which wouldn't surprise me based on the detail uh, yeah, the second story I didn't really didn't really do much for me. Beyond the Horizon from Sanya uh, Sanya Anwar, basically the story of Wonder Woman out uh, in in the waters around the island, and there's this big giant sort of Medusa like creature, this this giant female manifestation that has tentacles for hair and is sort of attacking ships, and then come to find out it's because this little girl along with her younger siblings were kidnapped by their uncle who was trying to get his brother to share the inheritance. And, you know, she died at sea basically, and is sort of haunting the waters around the Island. And then wonder woman basically says, you don't feel so bad and so guilty. One of your uh, siblings survived to this day. And then that makes everything okay. It just, it didn't, make a whole lot of sense. I mean, I understood everything that happened. I just, why does it have to be Wonder Woman that does this? Like, are, I, you know, is it again, somebody trying to show the compassion of Wonder Woman? Cause I think anybody would feel bad for this little girl. Um, so yeah, I thought it was just sort of a throwaway. I didn't, yeah, it didn't do much for me. I, I, you know, we just talked about what incredible use of the color the Christian Alame used to great effect. And here, like even Wonder Woman herself, she, she is she ever, they ever, I guess I'm flipping through. 
yeah, she's never colored with any color at, at any point. And <laughs> she's the main character. So yeah. uh yeah, big big failure on the use of color in that one for me. So anything to uh to add yeah. on that one, Rocky? No, I agree with you. Uh the, the the use of color and maybe it was intentional because the use of the sort of like the yellowing effect or which comes across more orangey than yellow, uh is it seems to be associated with the, this young 13 year old teenager who's a ghost who, who always, who wanted, who died trying to protect her family and came back as a ghost. And finally, when, when Wonder Woman tells her that one of her, that the, one of the descendants of her family members is still alive, the, the young 13 year old, this young ghost can sort of dissipate and essentially find her redemption and her soul is released into heaven into you know i'm i'm sure whatever whether it's valhalla or whatever constitutes the amazon heaven again but yeah it's it's a, it's a nice it's a feel good story very typical wonder woman but again in fairness you know that's exactly what these anthologies are supposed to give us and this yeah. this embraces the trope of front and center but in a, in a nice way in a nice way yeah the next one uh I guess action adventure kind of pulpy feel how the wonder woman was brought low by a mouse, but captured by the stars uh, by Kurt Busick with art by Benjamin Dewey. This one has fantastic art as well. Colors used a little bit more liberally um, and Steve Trevor and wonder woman go into this, this lab setting basically. And they're uh, fighting against some, some super villains, Dr. Cyber mouse man. Um, and eventually the human firework who I don't know that I've ever heard of before. This might be his first appearance. I don't know. Uh, but again, it's, this isn't the most original story and wonder woman, uh, outsmarts the human firework. And, and then he's captured by all these women that work in the lab. I don't know why there's no men that work there, but that's just <laughs> apparently <laughs> part of the way this story works. Steve Trevor's the only one, uh, but it's a, it's a, it's a fun, it, it's, you know, it's a fine, fun story. Again, much like the first story, the highlight for me is the, uh, the art because the, 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 actual narrative isn't breaking any new ground, but the art is spectacular. So yeah. Uh, Benjamin Dewey on the art, he does a really fantastic job here. There's sort of like this strange sort of exploding creature or almost like a sand creature in, in bright yellow. It, it really uh, juxtaposed against Wonder Woman's uh, yellow on her, on her gauntlets and on her, on her outfit. I mean, it, it looks really spectacular. And even the, I really like, even when he speaks that the word balloons uh, the word balloons are in bright yellow. They're not white. And so I, I like the, I, I like the word balloons actually coloring the word balloons yellow is a nice touch too. It sort of really brings out the, 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 the sound that you imagine that this villain makes. So I thought it worked quite well. Visually, it, it, this was very stunning. This is, uh, like you said, this, all the stories in this particular issue are, were pretty good, but the first one and this third one here in particular really stand out. I like to see Dr. Cyber, Do seeing Dr. Cyber again, haven't seen Dr. Cyber in the mainstream DC uh, Wonder Woman comic in a long time. It's great to see her here in this particular uh, interpretation uh, by uh, uh, Kurt Busiek. I, th I thought it was uh, I thought it was well done. Uh, you know, I I always joke. I've I've had of all the rants of any particular hero I've ever done on my on my own channel. I've ranted the most about Wonder Woman, and I <laughs> and I got to tell you, the the lack of a, a leading man when you exclude Steve Trevor is, is palpable in Wonder Woman comics. And it's, it's, I just say, it, I say it with love. I love Wonder Woman, but I, I do think that, you know, I understand that Wonder Woman, you, you, you know, let's face it. It's Wonder Woman is about empowering women first and foremost, but in the eyes of most writers. And I will just say that, uh, 
Uh, that's all well and good. But I, I do wish uh, moving, you know, I do wish they would be a little bit more kind to maybe throwing a little bit more testosterone in a lot of the stories. But I understand it's the times of which we live and, you know, I'm all for empowering women and, and what have you. But uh, nonetheless, it, it is it is kind of comical that you can you can actually uh, it's 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 amazing the, the the lack of testosterone in some of these stories. But in any event, there's a final page here. It looks like Salma Hayek. It looks like it looks like the woman telling the story, Hippolyta here at the end. It looks exactly like Sal, the actress Salma Hayek. And I thought Benjamin Dewey, good for you if you're gonna if you're gonna base Hippolyta off a off a, an actress. That's a pretty attractive one to base one on. So if there's if if we're not gonna get a lot of testosterone, give us a lot of gorgeous women, and that's what we got in this issue. So in this story <laughs> yeah and it's 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 not like we're asking for there to be you know somebody who comes in a, a man who comes and steals the spotlight from wonder woman but you know i, I want my comics to rec reflect the world outside my window so there should be and we're just talking about background characters here you know it should be men <laughs> and women you know the page where you know firework has exploded uh and he's kind of raining down and they're they're capturing um human firework in these in these jars and beakers or whatnot there should be men there you know capturing <laughs> them as, as well it makes no sense that it's all women yeah it's only women work at this lab that just again it just doesn't make sense so anyway uh next up in terms uh, of i just want to i just want to interject something uh that kurt kurt Busick did trip um he gave a tribute to Jean Paul Leon, uh, Leon, the the artist here. That's what this was. This story was dedicated to Jean Paul Leon by Kurt Busiek. Now, just on the end of it, so I just thought I'd mention yeah. that. Uh, the next story, "Feet of Clay," uh, from writer Josie Campbell, art by Carlos Danda. So, in terms of of the narrative, this is actually my favorite story in in the book. The art is still outstanding. So, like based on that, I think this this might be my my favorite one, and it. It focuses on Ant uh, Antiope, who was sort of the, the general, the lead warrior for uh, Hippolyta for a long time. And uh, this goes into her training Wonder Woman, her desire not to train uh, Wonder Woman. And it goes back to that whole idea, which has sort of been gotten away from in, in the most recent retellings of Wonder Woman's origin, where Wonder Woman was always supposed to become the next queen of the Amazon. She was not supposed to take place in the competition that was uh, created to decide who of the Amazons was going to go to man's world and, and be the kind of the liaison and about how Wonder Woman had to disguise her identity to take place in that because she was forbidden to do so by, by her mother. And this brings that back. And I love that because it's a classic part of Wonder Woman's story. And again, it, it's something that in some recent retellings hasn't been uh, spoken about very much. So love the characterization of Antiope here, love the interaction between her and um, and Wonder Woman and Diana uh, love how, you know, you, you think of Amazons as these bloodthirsty warriors. And um, I think the pendulum has swung that direction because for so long women were, you know, considered lesser or whatever in, in society. And so even though these Amazons were supposed to be these powerful warriors, they weren't always depicted that way in, in the Silver Age. And it was, there was a little bit of, uh, it was a little problematic. Uh, and so the tendency to swing back the too far the other way and they're kind of bloodthirsty almost at times and people talking about Wonder Woman's the fiercest warrior and blah, blah, blah. And, and I, I don't necessarily have a problem with that because I get that you're trying to, to be a little corrective. But what I love about Antiope here, she's the greatest of, of the Amazonian warriors, 
but even she's had enough and she wants to retire. And that just felt very authentic to me. So uh, again, I thought this was my favorite story. Uh, I thought it was great. Love the interaction between a young Diana and, and, uh, and Antiope and the art is, is fantastic. So definitely my, my favorite of the, the stories here. what do you think, Rocky? Yeah, I agree. I agree with you again. Josie Campbell there does a, does a really good job. I mean, normally these anthologies with the bright, uh, with the bright gold and black, colors this is obviously an anthology that first and foremost it's often the it's often the art that captures the eye but it's nice to get something that stands where the story stands out and antiope has a has a lot in common with uh with an older uh diana because antiope was a fierce warrior as well but she also sort of abandoned you know she even defied queen hippolyta she wanted to leave i've had enough of being a warrior and she and what what drew antiope back was a young diana who's stubbornness she calls young diana the clay thing because hippolyta told antiope antiope about her idea of creating a daughter out of clay and antiope thought she was crazy it's like what are you talking about and so she calls young diana clay thing and and it was you could tell that throughout this short story antiope over the years becomes very uh, she becomes close to diana and even misses diana when she's not around and and diana even lies to antiope about you know about what her mother says about her not she her mother Hippolyta, of course, didn't want her to be a warrior, uh, but Diana defied her mother and, and lied to Antiope about some of the things her mother had told her. And But in, in all those things that Diana did and all of Diana's flaws and in her deceptions, it's exactly – Antiope could relate to all of that because she was much like Diana. And it, you know, it ends with Diana – with uh, Antiope providing Diana the mask that she would use to disguise herself in the tournament that she would ultimately win to become Wonder Woman and travel into man's world. And so just a really great short story and a wonderful tribute to Wonder Woman lore. Yep, I agree. Uh, the last story I didn't really get didn't do anything for me. Maybe I'm missing something. I don't know who Hathor is or, or any of the lore here. So Trengli Wynn does the art um, and the story. And I thought it was fine, but I didn't really have any context. So it didn't really land for me. But uh, I th- thought maybe you knew more about Hattor, how this character fits in with Wonder Woman history, Rocky. I, I wish I did. I don't. And, you know, it's funny because I, I do read, I do have like probably six or seven different hardcovers of Golden Age Wonder Woman stories and Silver Age. But honestly, uh, I would, you know, I can always, I can always fall back on my faulty memory and say I didn't remember. But I, I don't remember this character I don't know if this character is new or not, but I can appreciate the story that this is just an old, this is a character that came in the context of the story. This Hattor character met Wonder Woman in the 1950s and was a, was a villain of Wonder Woman's. And ultimately it was Wonder Woman doing her usual supplication of her enemies, showing mercy to her enemies. And they ultimately, Wonder Woman always somehow turns her enemies into friends. And Wonder Woman always has that, uh, sometimes comfortable sometimes uncomfortable relationship with her her villains where whether it's the cheetah sometimes she's friends with barbara minerva sometimes she's not and and whether it's silver swan whether it's war master paula von gunther you know sometimes she befriends them sometimes she doesn't there's you know all of wonder woman's villains are broken in some way and this what what i like what stood out about about this story called memories of hattor is that this is one of wonder woman's villains that is it's a genuine success story this is a, one of wonder woman's villains that is genuinely reformed that you know 50 years later as an old woman she, this 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 one of wonder woman's old enemies actually respects her and wonder woman bestows upon her uh, a gift from her child uh from her childhood and it was i thought it was a nice story and in keeping with the uh in keeping with the 
with the compassion that Wonder, Wonder Woman has, even on those she would sometimes call enemy. Yep, I agree, hundred uh, percent. All right, up next we have Wonder Girl number four. I think it's coming out this week again. Super, it's been super delayed. It's been a few months since we've had a Wonder Girl issue, but written and drawn by Joel Jones. Uh, Joel is joined by Adriana Mello as uh, artist. Jordi Belair does the colors. Pat Brosso on letters. Uh, I don't know about you, Rocky, but I had to go back and and look at issue three because it had been too long. Uh, but what did you think of this issue? Oh my God. Um, okay, I. This issue is part four in a in a storyline called uh, Homecoming, and I got to tell you, uh, first of all, Joelle Jones, I I don't mind her art. Uh, I'm not a big fan. Whenever. Uh, Whenever um, uh, Mello influence, uh, jo- jo- Mello, Adriano Mello, I don't like her combination with Jones, even though they got similar similar artistic styles. I like when it's just Joelle Jones. This issue, so much is crammed in this issue. I'm so frustrated. I, I, I'm going to try to organize my thoughts as best I can, but there are 11 pages. I counted them. 11 pages are wasted. Right off the bat, with Yara Four being trained by by Shiron, this half horse, half human, she's being trained to be Hera's champion. Now, right off the bat, that doesn't make sense to me because I thought Hera wanted her dead. That was the whole point. In fact, that to be remember this whole storyline. We we you know all of a sudden Yara Floor, this new Brazilian Amazon, all of a sudden Themis- the Amazons of Themyscira want to find Yara Floor. The uh, Artemis of the, of the Amazons of the Banna McDowell tribe want to find her. And then, of course, Hera wants to find her to kill her. And and then, of course, you know, who are these Brazilians Amazons? So we have this mystery. Yara Flora then is traveling to Brazil. She travels to Brazil and she meets her bus driver. She falls in love with her bus driver who fall, follows her around like a stage five clinger. You know, he falls her on the plane back and then the plane crashes. And then when the plane crashes, Eros, the god of love, tries to shoot her with, shoots her with his arrow and he pricks himself. So he falls in love with Yara too. And now all of a sudden we're at issue four and we're on Olympus and time runs differently on Olympus. And as Hera here is moving the chess pieces on her board, suggesting that Hera has a game afoot. Hera is manipulating events. For some reason, Hera wants to make Yara her champion, but there's a catch at the end. Hera wants to train Wonder Girl, wants to train Yara to be her champion and then have Yara drink this ambrosia liquid, which will, which will force, which will make Yara floor forever beholden and forever trapped on Olympus. She'll be Hera's champion, but she won't ever be able to leave Olympus. Now, why Hera wants to do that, I'm not sure, but is what, what is more baffling to me is this Yara Floor doesn't seem, she seems so stupid. Like, I, I know Yara is young, but Yara Floor is, she's impulsive. The thing, the thing is, let's be blunt. What I love about Yara Floor, what most people like about, like about Yara Floor is that she is impulsive. She's going to make mistakes. And mean, the first 11 pages are with this Shuron character telling her, oh, you're impulsive. You're making mistakes. You got to focus. You got to, this is what a true warrior does. And you got to be, you know, you got to, you got to curb in your anger and your, and your hyperactivity. You got to reel it in. And, and I don't understand why, why we need to be privy to this. I don't, I don't want your floor to be, I don't understand why we're seeing this. I mean, to be very blunt, I don't, 
I want Yara Flor to be impulsive. I want her to make her states. I don't want... It's too soon to train out those flaws in Yara Flor. Those are exactly the flaws that I'm interested in seeing her exhibit in the stories. Don't take that away from her in the first 11 pages. Moreover, what gets more frustrating on this, and I'm going to be venting here, I don't like... There are multiple pages here where where, where the, the colorist gets lazy. Where Joelle Jones and, and Adriana Mello get very lazy. There, there's, there's one scene where Chiron is, is referencing her training and it's, everything's in an orange haze. You know, and he's talking about, you know, you know, he's giving her a lecture on weapons and, and, and combat. And I'm thinking like, why are we privy to this? I, I don't need to know this. Then, and then she, she talks to Eros. And and again, we got more pages of sheer lazy uh, laziness on the art, more orange haze showing her training again as 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 Chiron reflects back on all her training because again she she's in Olympus potentially for years here, but maybe only days have passed on Earth because when she goes she eventually goes back to Brazil. Eros, er, Eros, who's supposed to be in love with her, gives no indication that he's in love with her. Yara gives some indication that she's in love with him. She tries to resist it. So Eros isn't forcing himself on her. And she's sort of, she's attracted to Eros, which makes sense. She was shot with an arrow and, and saw him. But she wants to go back. Despite being in love with Eros, she wants to go back to Brazil one last time before she decides whether or not to go to the, to in, engage in the ceremony, to drink the ambrosia liquid, to to swear her allegiance to, to, to Queen Hera on Olympus. So, all of a sudden, we get this abrupt change. She's suddenly she's back in Brazil. She's embracing and kissing the Zhao, her boyfriend. But she's supposed to be in love with Eros. But she's still in love with Zhao. Meanwhile, and bear in mind, Zhao, she knew Zhao for about ten minutes, right? This is the that guy that followed her around like a like snot to glass. I don't understand this. This entire story, four issues in, everything feels rushed to me, and I just I get I, I'm just so disappointed and. And then out of the blue, while she's in while she's in Brazil, having a good time with Zhao, whooping it up, this this Brazilian Amazon called Patori approaches her and out of the blue tells her on a two-page spread her entire story. Oh, by the way, Yara, you're a special person. Why? Here's the story. Sheer laziness. We got exposition galore. We the 11 pages that were wasted in the front of this issue, it, they could have been spent explaining in, in beautiful, in Joelle Jones' beautiful art, in full color, what the history of Yara Flora's mother was. Because we, we get the history of Yara Flora, uh, how her mother, Ayala, was a member of the Amazonian tribe. The Amazons split between Thim the Themyscira and the Banamagdal tribe. They split. And then ultimately, Ayala was the one... Her, Yara's mother was the one Amazon that went her own way, fell in love with a god. They had a kid. That was Yara Flor. And then the gods, for whatever reason, got really pissed off and jealous of Yara Flor, of Ayala. And they attacked her. But they suddenly, these Brazilian Amazons popped up and took Ayala under their protection and Yara Flor under their protection. And that's really the story. But it's rushed. It's pretty much a story we kind of already knew from Future State. What, what I'm so disappointed in, artistically, I'm so disappointed in this issue. I mean, 
we got this green haze. We got this orange haze when Shuron is explaining the, the how to fight. And then we on a two-page spread in a green haze, we're deprived of, of, of beautiful art with this ugly green haze under the guise to give us a background. I remember the first issue of George Perez's Wonder Woman back in 1986, that the time spent telling that full story in full beautiful colors, we're not getting that here. And unfortunately, it gets even worse because then what happens is out of the blue, Artemis and Cassie finally find, they finally find Yora Floor. Now, bear in mind that wonder that Cassie is under direct orders from Hippolyta to bring in Yara Floor. Artemis is under direct orders from the Banner McDowell tribe, from Queen Faruka, to bring in Yara Floor. But instead, they greet Yara Floor. They don't even fight. They just talk with her. And then they decide to leave. They do nothing. <laughs> they do nothing. Both are defying their queens. Uh, Artemis is defying her queen of the Banner McDowell. Ca- Cassie is defying her queen of the, uh, uh, is defying Queen Nubia. And they're just, they, they find, I can't believe they found Yara Floor and they just left her. What was the point of the last three issues where we had fight scenes between, between Artemis and Wonder Girl and, and the Brazilian Amazons all looking for Yara Floor only to have them find her and then they have a conversation and then they leave her be? I, I can't believe this. And then at the end, all of a sudden, Yara Floor decides she's going to drink from the, the ambrosia and, 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 and ultimately, uh, become the champion of Hera. I'm sure she's going to decide not to, but anyways, I'm so disappointed in this. The amount of story that is crammed in this one issue and the wasted pages and, and the and the, the way, the choices that were made story-wise, artistically, the focus on the art. Joelle Jones, I'm stunned. It's like she ran out of time. So she, instead of taking the time to color her beautiful art, she decided to do it the lazy way out. And then maybe claim it was, well, it's a dream sequence. So everything should be one color or I was so disappointed in this. It's, there was a really great story here waiting to be told and it's been squandered this first four issues. I just, I'm so disappointed. I, ah, uh, oh man, I, I, I don't know, man, Jason, am I, am I, am I exaggerating or, or, or how do you feel about it? Oh, uh, I think you made your feelings pretty well. <laughs> you practically broke it down panel by panel. Sorry. Um, <laughs> I, so first of all, I, I, it's Jordi Blair on colors. I, I won't lay the blame for, for those sort of monochromatic pages completely at the feet of Jordi Blair, however, because you're right in that th- this line work is, is Joelle Jones and it's Joelle Jones writing it. So she must be instructing. There's, there's no way that, that Jordi Blair would color those pages like that, all pink or all green or all orange, unless directed to by, by Joelle Jones and oh. Jordi Belair is one of the best colorists in comics and she can make line work look so much better. So oh. I don't understand the choices either. It, it doesn't, I mean, I, I sort of get the green one. Okay. So they're looking at this pool and, and seeing, you know, flashbacks of things that happened in the past, but you have some green around the edges and give us some color so we can see that beautiful line work that Joelle Jones does. Um, I, I agree with you that this, this whole series has been a waste of potential because even though I didn't respond to Yara Floor the way you and Trevor from Dark Knight Nation did at first, I, I recognize that there is potential there. We've talked ad nauseum about how DC sort of squandered it while Wonder Woman, Diana Prince was sort of off doing whatever in, in the, the mythological realms. Um, I would almost say that the ideas that are presented in this issue 
are the sort of the best ideas that we've gotten for this series so far. And in my mind, what you do is you take this, these 20 pages or whatever, and you expand on them and you don't cut corners. And I don't think there's anything that happened in the first three issues that's even necessary. I think you throw all that out and you start with this. You start with this, you just expand it so that it's not choppy and it doesn't feel rushed, like you said, because it does. And yes, get rid of Jow because, in you know, to use your term, he is a stage five clinger <laughs> that makes no sense. Again, goes to the problem with pacing and the story not being built out correctly. That supposedly we're supposed to have this feeling and understanding that that Jow and and Yara Floor are, are deeply in love and they have this huge connection, a la uh, Sandra Bullock and Keanu Reeves in Speed because they were in a plane crash together. At first, they're in a <laughs> You know, ambulance crash together, then a plane crash together. It's brought them. No, there's no consequences. There's there's no there's no context. There's no there's nothing that's happened to make us understand why they would care about each other any more than two random strangers would. It doesn't make any sense, um, and it, it's problematic because again, it all goes back to pacing. I know Joelle Jones can tell a good story. But it's she's just trying to do too much here. Throw out all the stuff in the first three issues. Start with this because I did, I did like the the early pages of this, uh, where uh, Yara Floor was training um, with uh, with Kiron. But again, it, it it was choppy. I had to go back and look at issue three to remember. Oh yeah, she did get pulled away, and so it doesn't it doesn't make sense. And and like to your point about Kiron saying no, you you need to be better, um, and and try to train those impulses out of her uh you know i won't argue whether or not that's valid or not but what didn't make any sense to me was how she was failing at all that and and couldn't make it work despite kiran's uh you know expertise uh, of centuries of training fighters uh that leads her to despair because she feels like she's failing but then uh i don't know i guess she gets a bolts of inspiration from from the rain maybe it's tom king who loves to tell stories in the rain she's just standing in the rain uh, despondent, and the horse that she tried, the flying horse that she tried to capture earlier, comes up and nuzzles her, and that that's what sparks it. And she turns a corner, and all of a sudden she's doing everything that she was being asked to do by Carrie. It doesn't it doesn't make any sense. There's no there's no in story reason why everything would just turn around all of a sudden, other than she was standing out in the rain. Uh, it, it's it's lazy. Uh, it's frankly insulting to the reader's intelligence to have no in-story reason other than she was feeling sad and standing in the rain and the horse felt bad for her. Again, it it just all kinds of problems. Her going back to Brazil to hang out with this guy that she shouldn't care about, but apparently madly in love with. It doesn't make any sense. It's just, it all goes back to pacing in my mind. Uh, It's not paced well. And it's frankly a, a wasted opportunity. Um, I, I will say that despite the problems with coloring, because I did think, and again, you wonder maybe because when we look at these pages that are monochromatic, there's a lot of work here. They're, they're all montages and it's incredible line work from Joelle Jones. Uh, so this is some of the best line work I've ever seen Joelle Jones do. The book is already super late. We've talked about that. Now it's being impacted by paper shortages and whatnot. How much of the fact that Jordi Belair colored these this monochromatic might be because she she only had a couple days to color it? I mean, we just we don't know. We're not privy to that information. But 
normally Jordy Blair is up to those kind of challenges, but it might've just been, look at these, how comp, uh, complex these pages are that are monochromatic. Maybe she just simply didn't have the time. So I don't know. I feel like if, if DC wanted Joelle Jones to write and draw this, we saw she wasn't able to keep up with the schedule on Catwoman. They should have had her start this, I don't know, April, March of this year, maybe. They didn't even know this series is going to exist then, but that's what they needed to do. They needed to give her that much lead time and maybe we wouldn't have these pacing yeah. and, and timing issues. So in my mind, it's just a failure. Um, it's just a wasted opportunity. And, you know, the fact that her possible TV show was canceled, she, Yara Floor will disappear quickly uh, once the series is over and maybe somebody will pick her up later on and do something with her. But uh, it's kind of sad that she was, she was wasted. So, yeah. <clears throat> Uh, anyway, let's move on. Detective Comics number 1044 from writer Mariko Tamaki. Dan Mora is the artist. Jordi Belair on colors. Aditya Bidikar on letters. Then there's a backup that's written by Stephanie Phillips. David Lapham, the legendary uh, artist, handles the pencil work. Uh, Trish Mulvihill does colors and Rob Lee's on letters. Uh, what do you think of uh, Nakano's Nightmare Part 2, Rocky? I thought uh, not a heck of a lot happened here. To be honest, I was a little bit uh, uh, not a heck of a lot happened. I mean, the last issue we 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 uh, Maricano was basically rescued by Batman, but the Maricano and Batman ended up being chased by the by this terrorist group led by this Nero Nero character and his six fellow terrorists, and uh, they escaped, but they escaped into the sewers of Gotham. And this entire issue consists basically of of Batman. Of Batman and Marinagano trying to find each other because they're they're separated under the streets of Gotham in, in the sewages of Gotham because uh well let's face it, there's Batman spent a lot of time in the sewers, <laughs> you know, in fear state. You know, he's he, he of course that's where his bat his mini bat caves were because he never had his bat cave and he, he lost his fortune, so he tried to create a series of mini little bat caves and, and they all sort of crashed and were blown up and and there's been a lot that's happened and it, it's frankly the underground of Gotham City between all the havoc created by Poison Ivy and and then then the sewage system which has been blown up numerous times through by various forces it's it's very unstable and so Batman with the help of uh, Oracle's letting Batman know that uh, Batwoman is on her way to take care to take out Nero and his terrorists who have taken over City Hall. So Batwoman takes out the uh, uh, Nero's forces in City Hall, and meanwhile Batman tries to get to Nagano in this issue. And I got to say, Dan Moore's art here is fantastic, and I, I love I love with Kate Kane showing up the sequence with Bat Batwoman showing up that was unexpected. I really liked how she took out uh, Nero's forces. I thought that was really good. I, I love the the sequences where Batman is trying to talk to Mayor Nakano, uh, who is on the other side of this huge, basically wall of stone. And ultimately, we have we still have Vile. Vile, of course, being that parasitic villain who died, but his blood cells uh, become parasites, and they can infect and get infect you and get under your skin. And these parasites actually hatch. This this particular issue has a horror story element to it that is very powerful. There's a strong horror story element here where these these things hatch and they actually crawl 
under Mayor Nagano's skin, and it's it's actually quite it's actually quite horrifying. Dan Mora does a really good job here. If I didn't know better, I thought I was reading a Black Label series like for Joe Hill comics. I mean, this is this is really good stuff. It, it's really disgusting. You can actually see this like parasitic, almost scorpion-like creature boring into the skin uh, through Mayor Nagano's uh, right hand. It's like it, it's really done very well, and of course Nagano's freaking out. And Batman ultimately gets to Nagano, but he takes a great risk in doing so, and he elect he ends up electrocuting Nagano uh, in an attempt to kill the parasites within him, and successfully kills the parasite. But the jury is still out of whether Mayor Nagano uh, is actually going to survive. Of course, we know from future Satan, Mayor Nagano does survive, but it's very well done. This is very, in terms of a sequence, the action here is very beautifully rendered by Dan Mora. He does a really good job putting to the artistically rendering uh, Marika Tamaki's script here. This, this really, this is actually, it's action packed and it's fun to read. However, at the same time, if we're talking about story, not a heck of a lot happens. The main story proper doesn't really advance all that much. We just have Batman essentially rescuing Marinagano and Batwoman taking up Nero. But as far as pushing forward the story of Fear State, it's, it's once again, we're at a snail's pace. So that's the one criticism. So good story, snail pace uh, uh, in terms of the the progression of the story, but beautifully rendered and, and nice to look at and a good horror feel element to it. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and I'll especially give a shout out in terms of the, 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 the visuals to Jordi Belair here. Um, you know, we were kind of giving her a tough time on the, the one uh, wonder girl book about using a limited palette here being the fact that Bruce Wayne's in the sewers. It's a lot of grays and whites uh, and blacks. Um, but when she does use color, it it pops that much more, you know. Whether it's the the sort of little nest of vile creatures, or or seeing the the explosion in the background uh, between uh, the conversation between Batman and uh, and Mayor Nakano, or or when uh, when Kate Kane shows up as Batwoman, and we get that that pop of red from her hair, uh, it really helps set the mood. And it, the, yeah, the visuals are are absolutely fantastic. I agree 100% with you about the snail's pace uh, movement of the story. It's, I've talked about it before with Fear State. Like, uh, I just wonder how much, you know, again, going back to the, the Bat Thoughts um, series of newsletters that James Tynan has been releasing to his uh, Substack uh, subscribers, talking about what his plan was and how DC's like, oh, let's make it even bigger. Let's make it even bigger. I don't really think that the idea of Fear State is big enough to warrant the number of issues and, and the size and scope that they've devoted to it. And that's why we end up with all these issues where hardly anything is happening. It's just ridiculous. This could have been like, you should have just done it, it its own standalone six issue mini uh, for fear state. And I, I think that would have been enough issues to get everything done because yeah, you're, you're getting a chance to have some big panels with a lot of detail and let the artists sort of stretch their muscles. But in terms of, something actually happening. Yeah. Not much, not much going on. So it, it loses that feel of being consequential. You know, if you go back and read some of the most consequential big story arcs of all time, big crossovers of crisis on infinite earth is probably the, the pinnacle of the example that stories issues are overstuffed with so many characters and so many things going on. It feels important. This feels less important because so little happens. Uh, as far as the backup story foundations, part one, Again, not to sound like a broken record, I love the idea of what Tynan had. Let's get rid of Arkham Asylum. Let's 
burn it to the ground. Let's completely raise it and let's raise Pennyworth Tower in its place. And that'll be the, the place where people go for help, you know, wh whether it's mental help or, or physical or whatever. It'll be this shining beacon and honor the legacy of Alfred Pennyworth and, and Bruce Wayne will fund it, whatever. I don't know if we'll get there. I hope we will because this whole idea of, okay, well, A-Day happened and uh, we're going to learn something about the, the history of when Arkham Asylum was uh, was created. And at this point, Arkham Asylum is one step below the Joker in my mind of being overused and cliched and just, I just want it to go away. I never want to hear the word Arkham anymore. And uh, it's interesting because it seems like Stephanie Phillips sort of feels the same way. At least she's addressing it in the story. Mayor Nakano is giving a, a press conference and he's saying, oh, it's important to remember Arkham's part of our history, blah, blah, blah. No. I mean, this guy was like good enough to win his election as mayor, but he's a complete moron. Like any political operative would know you, you completely want to distance yourself from the past with A-Day and with all these, you know, crazy supervillains that have broken out of Arkham over the years. The last thing you'd want to do is carry on that legacy. You'd want to do the exact opposite. Uh, so it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't read as realistic. It, frankly, it's dumb. He's a terrible and, mayor. Marigano, he's, he he's a terrible mayor. <laughs> he's, an, he's a total idiot. It, it, he's almost stupid enough to believe he really could be a Republican that's in office. Almost. <laughs> so I, I just, yeah, to me, uh, unless we actually get to the point where this is, and, and you can just look at, I, at the, the, the visuals to know we're not going to actually get there. Because when you go and look, Arkham Tower construction site, it's dreary and it's gray and it's, you know, foreboding. And you can just see that, yeah, they're just rebuilding crap on top of crap. This Arkham Tower is going to look gothic and it, it just doesn't make any sense. Go the other way like like Tynan wanted. That's such a great idea. Have it be bright. Have it be white or silver have it resemble nothing like uh, Arkham Asylum again. Can we actually uh, inject some, some, for lack of a better term, hope? I, I know you're all about hope in the DC Universe, Rocky. Can we can we inject some hope? Can it start <laughs> with Pennyworth Tower? Uh, God, it just enough of just recycling the same old crap with Gotham and Batman and dark and gritty and dystopian, like. Is, is Zack Snyder actually the editor-in-chief at, at DC and then they're not telling us that we can never do something in Gotham that gives even one glimmer of positivity? Like, I just, it just needs to go away. Like, I was actually happy. Okay, A-Day happened, no more Arkham Asylum. Okay, great. I'm all for that. Oh, you're going to replace it with Pennyworth Tower? I, I'm I'm 100% in. That That's fantastic. That's even better than just letting Arkham Asylum go away. But no, it's, you know, we can't ever have anything that, that's good or hopeful or, or positive. Got to be stuck in that gritty Gotham City. Just, yeah, it, I, I don't blame Stephanie Phillips for this. Uh, I think in terms of what she's doing, what she's got to work with, she's doing a good job. But this doesn't interest me. Oh, what do you know? The architect that designed Arkham Asylum went crazy and killed a bunch of people with an axe. How? <laughs> How uh, predictable, you know, yeah. how completely unsurprising. I'm just tired of these kind of stories, you know, with Gotham. Everything in the past, like, I'll ask, the, I've asked this question before, I'll ask it once more. With every time we hear about the history, every time we learn more about the history of, of Gotham City with murdering and 
possession of of people going nuts or possessed by demons or or whatever it is about Gotham. Maybe it's in the water there. <laughs> Why in the hell would anybody live in Gotham City? Why? Why? <laughs> like you used to say, oh well, maybe it used to be a nice place, and they settled, and now it's gotten bad, and they can't afford to move. No, apparently, even from back when they first built Arkham Asylum, there was scandal with this architect literally killing the construction crew with an axe. <laughs> Why would anyone ever live in, in Gotham City with an idiot mayor and, and a supervillain on every corner? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Wise up, DC editorial. You, you, got, you, know, you had somebody good. Maybe if you'd given Tynan the uh, freedom to use some of these great ideas that he had that were really refreshing... He might not have left. Yeah. No, I... Sorry. Sorry. I, I, yeah. Yeah, no, it's all right, man. You're on a rant. That's, that's all yeah, good. Yeah, at least you put the rant... Yeah, you put the rant up there because... <laughs> that's right. Man, it just... It's just annoying. It's yeah. just annoying. They have the they, the potential for good stories and new ideas. And they're constantly shooting themselves in the foot. It's okay. It's okay for Gotham City to have a little glimmer of hope. You want? Don't you want the contrast? We talk about it all the time when, when stories, well, it's a little bit of a down issue, not that much happened, whatever. But you need those issues so you have the contrast. You need the issues where things go at a slower pace so yeah. then when it ratches up, it gets you excited. You need that in narrative yeah. storytelling. Well, they so can, well like you said. doom and gloom all the time in Gotham it, City, it gets boring and tiring. Yeah, well, they can change things up once in a while too. I mean, like you said, there's not, nothing wrong with changing things up. I mean, God forbid that Arkham Asylum isn't some haunted house you know i mean i mean it's it's it shouldn't look like a haunted house anyway arkham asylum you know maybe it's about time they updated it but instead they're they're gonna have hugo strangers former headquarters as being the arkham asylum <laughs> i mean in the arkham tower i like the idea of it being a tower but like you said i i hear you man I, I, you know i'll give all the power to your rant <laughs> yeah ridiculous completely ridiculous <laughs> All right. Up next, Deathstroke Incorporated, number two, from writer Joshua Williamson. Howard Porter's the artist. Hi-Fi on color. Steve Wands on letters. Um, I got to talk about the art first. Some interesting choices here. Howard Porter chose to do, like, double-page spreads throughout the entire issue with insets. Maybe Joshua Williamson instructed him to do that. I think there was a time when Howard Porter art would lend itself to this. Uh, back before he was was injured and had to, to relearn how to draw, uh, I don't think that his art is is terrible by any stretch of the imagination. I'll, you know, I, I give the guy full credit for coming back and being a, a fantastic artist still in a different style, and I, I think that's why his art works so well on Flash because it's a little looser, it's a little kinetic, it's great at um, depicting movement. But when you do these giant, detailed full page spreads like this, I don't feel like his art is clean enough to pull this off. It ends up feeling really messy and distracting and it's sort of visually tiring and it's hard to read. Um, it was a bit of a struggle for me to get, to get through this, not necessarily to understand what was going on, but I had to keep taking breaks, you know, because it, there's just so much going on. Um, so uh, again, I, I mean, a lot of work clearly went into this, uh, but I, I just, I think that the, I, I got to imagine that this was Joshua Williamson kind of art directing him here to, to use these layouts. And it, to me, it just didn't work. Um, as far as the story goes, I guess Deathstroke Incorporated is going to be a lot of one and done. Uh, Joshua Williamson seems to be trying a, 
things are a little different. There's obviously the undercurrent of, of the mystery of who trust is and the fact that you, if you're Black Canary and, and Slade, you can't actually trust trust. Um, it's kind of boring, to be honest with you. Uh, it feels cliche. It's like a story I've read before. So um, I, I can't really recommend it. It, it doesn't, you, you don't get enough of Black Canary or enough of Slade in this issue to really, like if you're fans of them, like if you're a, flan, a fan of Black Canary, um, I don't say, okay, you got to pick this up and read it because Black Canary gets a chance to shine. She barely, she barely shows up. Same thing with Deathstroke, you know, he's got a, a, maybe a moment or two, which is more than Black Canary has, but it certainly doesn't feel like a Deathstroke book. I'm still not clear why this is called Deathstroke Incorporated. Yeah, so it yeah. just feels like a, a slightly below average uh, DC comic with some really busy artwork. Uh, and again, I don't fault the uh, the pencil, the actual technical rendering from uh, Howard Porter. I, I think that Joshua Wimson didn't didn't give him uh, his best chance to shine. Didn't didn't set set him up for success with the way he asked for these pages to be laid out. So so far, Deathstroke Incorporated has been below average for me i don't know did you feel differently rocky uh well i uh, i don't i agree with you on the art i've never i've you know straight up i've never been a big fan of the the uh, howard porter art to begin with uh but i i do acknowledge that apparently i understand he's come off an injury and you know look it's still pretty damn good art i mean don't get me wrong i expect you know but i hate i hate apologizing on behalf of an artist saying yeah i'm injured how what do you think of my art now uh but you know, if I'm if I'm if I'm brutally honest, I'm not a fan of the art, and I you know I was less you know I was more of a fan back in the day when he did Justice League with Grant Morrison. I actually kind of liked it. it; was just cleaner. It just seems choppier now. It's interesting here that every single page is a two-page layout, is a two-page spread. And for those watching on YouTube, uh, you're not getting the full effect because I'm just using a one-page element in between uh, Jason, uh, my face and Jace's. But uh, for those listening on the uh, pod, uh, Comic Source podcast, I can advise that you know every single page is a two-page layout. And I want to give Howard, the artist Howard Porter, some credit here because it does. It is, it is very well. He obviously put a lot of thought into this. And some of this does kind of work well. Like, I want to give him some credit. This is probably the best his art's been in a while, I think, even though it might feel a little bit cluttered. What I particularly like about what, what Howard Porter has done here, and if I, if I want to, I'm going to go into full compliment mode here. I can see what Joshua Williamson is trying to do from a storytelling point of view and what Howard uh, Porter's bringing to the table artistically and that is that we're getting the weird i haven't seen the weird i think i got to go back to the early 90s or late 80s the, the character of the weird this cosmic entity and i think joshua williamson is using using deathstroke incorporated to incorporate i think more elements into his infinite frontier continuous storyline that's going to continue on in justice league incarnate and ultimately going to be leading into the crisis in the summer of 2022 because what what Two two big things here are revealed that in in Deathstroke and Black Canary are to basically uh, rescue some astronauts from this satellite, and they're all they're told is you got to rescue some astronauts and retrieve some data. Well, it ends up that the data they want to retrieve is actually they need to save the weird because Cyborg Superman is trying to the the weird is this creature that is like a cosmic power battery, and Cyborg Superman is is essentially there at the satellite to siphon off the power of the weird because the cyborg Superman thinks that 
the weird can help him broadcast and extend his control over all of the machines across the multiverse. Now, this is linked in with uh, Joshua Williamson is the guy who's heading the big the big plans for DC. He's the big architect for DC moving into the 2022 and the big crisis. And and uh, you know he's I think he's bitten off a little bit more than he can chew, but you know he's got to think big and he's given it his best shot. This is Cyborg Superman trying to play it big. Cyborg Superman wants to control all the machines in the multiverse. We know that with we're gonna have Dark Side, we're gonna have uh, we're gonna have Eclipso, we're gonna have the, the Gentry, we're gonna have multiple multiversal powerful beings uh, trying to get control of the multiverse. And the Weird is one of the good guys, and and the Cyborg Superman obviously being one of the bad. Like you said, this is just a one-shot story, but it establishes two big players. Cyborg Superman is back trying to gain control over all machines in the multiverse. That's pretty damn big. And of course, we got the weird we've not seen in a while. So that's interesting there. As for the rest of it, I just don't care about trust. I really don't care about trust. There's this new character called Hero uh, who is put, wears the bat suit. They must have stolen some Wayne Tech, some bat suit. So he wore that to try to rescue the weird. I don't, I'm not buying into, I, I don't buy into this. Uh, Williamson tries to establish some rapport between Dinah Lance and Slade. I mean, forget it. I You're never going to convince me that Dinah Lance is going to bond with Slade Wilson. That just doesn't work. That feels so forced. The story here does feel, it feels kind of choppy. and I, I feel as uneasy about this as I do as Robin. It just feels a little bit one-dimensional. It feels a little bit sort of, by the numbers, it it doesn't really feel that this is really building to anything, even though I just kind of, I know that it kind of is, but it just feels, this is kind of choppy. It doesn't really feel organic. It doesn't really, everything in the DC universe now, it's starting to feel a little bit more and more, almost a little bit disconnected, yet we know it is connected because we're reading all the, 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 the comics. But uh, there's a, in any event, it's it's a little bit off to me. I'm not really a huge fan of this trust. Uh, I, but, and then, then it ends weirdly. All of a sudden they're going to send, they're going to send Black Canary and Deathstroke to go retrieve Barbara Minerva, who is now suddenly Queen, Hail Queen Cheetah. This is, where is this coming from? This seems, all of this seems so completely out of left field. And, but again, it's, I guess it's done in one. Uh, that's like. I guess it's okay, I guess. I just it, it just feels so jarring and choppy and uh, um it doesn't quite feel cohesive. I always feel like I feel like I'm I'm on a joy ride as opposed to a journey, if that makes any sense. And joy rides are fun, but uh joy rides don't need to go anywhere. I I I like I like a journey where I kind of know where the destination is and I might really feel I I don't feel like I know where this is headed and I'm only speculating. And if that makes any sense, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, yeah, why is it called Deathstroke Incorporated? It's like it should be called like Tales of Infinite Frontier or something because you're right. I mean, maybe it is just Williamson setting things up. As far as him them having the bat equipment, if you remember in the first issue, or it might even been a backup in something or in a, a anthology where we found out that Trust had bought uh, a bunch of Wayne tech after the Joker War. And they ended up yeah. with all the Batman uh, equipment, so that's where that that bat suit came from. But yeah, I just right. it doesn't, this doesn't make any, this doesn't make any sense. It doesn't feel like like why is it called Deathstroke Incorporated? We barely get any Slade. We don't get any Black Canary. 
jumping from, you know, crazy killer bees with hive last issue to now we're in space. Next issue, we're heading to some crazy magical Amazon kingdom where <laughs> cheetahs queen. Yeah. What the F is this series trying to do? <laughs> I can't tell you. So I can't recommend it. So anyway, uh, I can recommend the next issue, uh, next series. I thought it was a great start and really enjoyed it. Uh, it's Task Force Z number one from writer Matthew Rosenberg. Eddie Barrows handles the pencils, Ebar Ferrer on inks, Adriana Lucas on colors, Rob Lee on letters. That trio of Barrows, Ferrer, and Lucas on pencils, inks, and colors, respectively. You know, ever since I saw their work uh, on the Freedom Fighters series that was written by Robert Venditti, I've been an absolute fan, and those three can do no wrong when you put them together in, in my book. But uh, anyway, what did you think, Rocky? Task Force Z, number one. Um, I have a feeling we're gonna dis- we're going to disagree on this one. Uh, because I was, I was straight up, I was so disappointed in this. This is nothing but, this is nothing but Suicide Squad with, 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 with zombies. I I was so disappointed. There's nothing new about this. The story jumps right in, in an adventure with Jason Todd is, is with, uh, they're chasing down Quilt Man with a, with a, with a zombie man bat and a zombie bane. And then. And then they capture Quilt Man. They take him back to the headquarters. We meet this. We meet a new doctor. Uh, for in the, it's this Project Halperin. So we we the teases that we got in Batman Urban Legends for this were awesome. You know, it was like it ended with with Jason Todd being approached and he was going to be recruited. And what's this Project Halperin? And we know that the dead of Gotham are being raised. These dead villains. And and I I couldn't. I'm. I'm not a fan of what of the way in which Matthew Rosenberg has decided to tell this story. This feels like all of a sudden it's like we're months ahead uh, and Jason Todd must have accepted the offer to join Project Halperin, to join Task Force Z. But why would he? I can't believe Jason Todd would accept this. What did they offer Jason? What did Jason Todd get out of this? Why is Jason Todd on this team? What did they offer him? It's not even said. Why is they he on this team? Keep, they, it is said that they offer to keep him out of jail. Well, oh, 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 come on, okay. Well, uh, yeah. That's weak. As if Jason, as if Jason Todd can't break out of any prison. I mean, that's 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 not a threat to Jason Todd. But but fair enough, fair enough. I just, it still feels to me like I mean, it's, that's that's Suicide Squad. We'll keep you out of jail. You work for us, okay? So, and and they're all. And and Jason and they're keeping all these villains alive or all these dead villains are brought back to life with Lazarus resin, but they all they know is Lazarus resin brings back these villains, but they don't know the effect that Lazarus resin has on living tissue. So you mean to tell me that they only experimented with Lazarus resin on dead tissue? They never bothered putting it on living tissue, and they warned Jason Todd, whatever you do, don't touch Lazarus resin. <laughs> I mean, and and then we, we don't even know what they're doing. What's the point of their mission? They talk to Quiltman. What's the point? They're 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 they're, they're interrogating Quiltman for what purpose? They're scaring Quiltman during interrogation by taking a, a zombie Arkham Knight, but and 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 scaring him. Okay, for what purpose? What's the reason for Task Force Z to exist? This is just a glorified Suicide Squad, which I suppose 
I should know better. I should know that from the title. Okay, you can say, well, yes, I should know that from should. the title. It's Task Force yeah. Z. Of course it's related to the Swiss, except Amanda Waller, I'm sure you're happy to hear, is nowhere to be found in this comic. Thank God. But but let's be blunt. We got a de facto Amanda Waller. The only difference is that she's skinnier and she's white. <laughs> I mean, uh, I mean, I, I just don't understand the reason for this comic to exist other than to give us zombie Batman villains. I, um, I don't know. Um, I just thought that this was, uh, I thought this was very disappointing. Uh, I, I just, I don't understand the reason. I just don't, I don't understand the point of this. This is, this is another excuse. This is repetitive. This is redundant. This is a waste of time. This is, if you, you want, this is an excuse to get another version of the Suicide Squad out. We've already got, we, we got the Hell Squad and Suicide Squad. We got the Suicide Squad and Hell and Suicide Squad. We got Task Force X. Uh, we got, we got dead Suicide Squad members coming back to life in Suicide, in, a, in Suicide Squad already. This is the same concept, but in a different comic. This is redundant. This brings nothing new to the table, and the story brings nothing new. And I can't, I can't emphasize how disappointed I am. Matthew Rosenberg brought something really creative when he brought the Wildcats in. That was awesome. This is a complete redundancy. The one saving grace, though, I will grant you, is Eddie Burrows on the art, uh, Eber Ferreira on the inks, and Adriana Lucas on the colors. Fantastic. This is a beautifully rendered comic. I actually thought this was the Polka Dot Man. I didn't, I, 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 at first, I didn't know it was Quilt Man. I thought it was Polka Dot Man at the beginning. I thought that would have been a better, a better use of that character as opposed to Quilt Man. But anyways, artistically, it's fantastic. I mean, it, it, it just pops off the page. But story-wise, I'm just, I'm baffled that, at the complete lack of creativity on this in terms of, talk about out of ideas. I mean, Tinian and Rosenberg put their heads together and they came up with something that we've already seen. I, I can't believe, I, I just can't believe how disappointed I am. I'm, I'm, I'm stunned. So tell me I'm wrong, Jace. Yeah, I could not, I could not disagree more. Uh, I will say that, yes, there are a lot more questions than answers. A hundred percent, but it's a first issue and it's set up and uh, Matthew Rosenberg gives his usual uh, humor filled dialogue and Jason Todd is thrown into the deep end of the pool and, he refers to these guys as monsters because they are, he calls them zombies and, you know, the powers of being, hey, don't call them monsters. Don't call them zombies. <laughs> they're people. Well, you know, they're, they're people taking their Lazarus gummies to, to bring them <laughs> back to life. And to your point earlier in the episode about how de death has come to mean so little in the, the DC universe, but this has been building for a long time in the backup features with, uh, of detective comics with bodies disappearing in Gotham and, and whatnot. And it's a, it's a great way to bring back some of these villains who've been taken off the, the table in a different way, in a different context. You know, you're talking about being redundant and, and, you know, a story that we've seen before. Well, we haven't really had a story with a, a dead man bat and a dead Arkham Knight and a dead Bane walking around <laughs> under the leadership of Jason Todd, who, who doesn't want to be there, frankly, uh, doesn't want to be, uh, you know what, my light just fell down. Hold on a second. Uh, so I do, I do, I get what you're saying, but at the same time, I don't, I don't necessarily agree that this is something that's completely redundant and, and we've seen before. Um, but yeah, there are a lot more questions than answers. And uh, apparently my light's just not going to stay. So I'm just going to leave it down there. Uh, but anyway, I, I enjoyed it. I thought the art was fantastic. Are there more questions and answers? Yes. Is is it reminiscent of, of Suicide Squad? Well, yeah, of, of course it is. 
And part of the reason for that is that it's supposed to be. Um, even when uh, Jason Todd goes to confront Mr. Freeze, he even says, you know, you're, you're, I'm taking you into uh, custody under the authority of the Federal Task Force Act. So, yeah, Task Force Z gets their authority the same way that Task Force X does. So, again, I, I didn't necessarily have a, a problem with that. Really, this is just a way for, in my mind, Matthew Rosenberg to write a Red Hood series. You could have called it Red Hood, but why not call it? Task Force Z got the Suicide Squad movie that just came out, right? So maybe that the DC, the powers that be over at DC think this, this title will allow it to sell better. I, I don't know, but I enjoyed it. Uh, does that mean it's going to be great? No, I mean, again, this is the first issue. I, I, I understand why it feels a little reductive or redundant, um, but there's enough mystery and intrigue and, and I trust Matthew Rosenberg enough as a creator that I'm that I think this is going to turn out to be really good. Um, so yeah, yeah. well, well, well I, I hope you're right. You could be right. I just, I, I think maybe I'm just getting too much, you know, I'm really enjoying suicide squad, uh, I, which is ironic, but I just, I just felt like I just, I really thought this was going to be, take a very different tact. This was going to go down a, a different road and it just, it's, it's so, I just feel it's so predictable and so redundant. I just, I really thought they were going to try to delve some new ground here, but they're, but they're not. And, and this, this Lazarus resin is something they've doubled down on in multiple plot threads from here all the way to future state with just this sort of Lazarus thing and, and everyone's coming back to life. And it's, it seems like multiple different storylines with different writers treading down the same road. I'm just actually surprisingly, I'm, I'm just disappointed. I just really would have thought with a little bit more, you know, again, I'm not saying the stories can't be bad. I'm just, I can't be good. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just surprised. I, I, anyways, I'll just leave it at that. Let's, we can move along. <laughs> yeah. I'm surprised. I thought you would have, I mean, you, you liked what Rosenberg has done in the DC universe previously. So I thought you would have, would dig that like I did. So anyway, yeah, uh, I have a feeling I know what your uh, reaction would be to the next book. It's uh, <laughs> Checkmate number five from writer Brian Michael Bendis, oh. art and cover by Alex Maliev, colors by Dave Stewart, letters by Josh Reed. Uh, I guess turn on your rant balloon and take it away. Oh boy, uh, yeah. Should I give myself a rant balloon on this? I I suppose I could. Um... Okay. Let me see. Well, I can tell you this about, uh, you talk about redundancies. This, uh, this is unbelievable. This, this apparently, I think you can tell that this was, I think initially this was intended to come out much sooner because according to this issue, this is where this is the issue where Leonardo Lane introduces himself to his sister Lois. Lois Lane doesn't dis, she discovers that she has a brother in this issue. Like last issue, uh, Lois Lane got the clue as to the snowman's ticket, and it was revealed that the snowman's ticket is in fact Leonardo Lane. And so, I guess Lois, like this is how badly this is organized, and how badly DC editorial has blundered this. And how badly they've sold this. It is quite obvious from this issue that Lois Lane has no idea that she has a brother. She's discovering for the first time that she has a brother. And 
I'm absolutely stunned. I, I don't even know. I, I mean, <laughs> and then not only that, meanwhile, meanwhile, Leviathan has transported the church where all the checkmate members were in, transported that to Thailand of all places. Why Thailand? I don't know. It's never explained why he transports all the checkmate. He transports Steve, Trevor, Manhunter, Green Arrow, Robin, Talia, The Question, and Mr. King. Transports them while they're in this church to Thailand. Why Thailand? It's never revealed. I don't know. Where in the timeline does do all these events fall? It's not clear. Uh, how long before does this take place before the events that take place for checkmate is in the pages of Bendis' Justice League? Well, in, in the pages of Bendis' Justice League, Lois Lane knows she, she has a brother. So this takes place before Justice League. We get no editorial boxes. We get no explanation. We get no nothing in terms of where this is supposed to go. When we first meet, it, when we first come across Leonardo Lane, who we, we know to be the Damon Rose, the Damon Rose, he's, he's motioning to Lois to be quiet because, you know, one of the um, Le Leviathan's men that he took out is... He's unconscious and he doesn't want to tip them off. They run into Leviathan's men. Damon Rose takes them out. And then he, he takes off with Lois and he says, you can call me Leonardo, Leo. It's really nice to finally meet my sister. Now that's a major revelation. Now this, we're learning this, or Lois Lane apparently is learning this for the first time. And I hate, I mean, artist Alex Maleev makes no effort whatsoever unless he didn't know what the dialogue was when he read the script, uh, Lois Lane doesn't even look surprised in the panel where, you know, a person she doesn't know says, I'm your brother. She doesn't even look surprised. To make it even worse, as they have conversations, and this is where the choppiness of the narrative comes in, because we, we, jump, we jump to a different scene, to multiple scenes that reveal nothing of substance. We, we finally get back <laughs> to the car scene. Lois Lane isn't asking any questions. I mean, I mean, just think about it for one second. If, if you met somebody who out of the blue says, by the way, I'm your sibling, aren't you going to have a lot of questions? Especially, especially if you're a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter. Are you not going to say, oh, then you're Lois Lane. You're, you've been investigating Leviathan. The guy that's destroyed intelligence agencies around the world. You're not gonna you're gonna you're not gonna have more questions. And all of a sudden the Damon Rose, this assassin, comes forward, claims to be your brother, and then the only thing you can say is, Dear Lord, you look exactly like my son. Lois, are you gone insane? Okay, so this guy looks exactly like your son John Kent, okay? So but don't you have other questions like like where have you been? You can't possibly be my brother. I would know I would have a brother as if my dad would lie to me about me having a brother. But of course, he has lied. Sam Lane, what this does to Lois Lane mythology is unbelievable because now Sam Lane lied to his wife, lied to Lois Lane, lied to Lucy Lane that, by the way, the two of you have a brother that I never told you about. And to make it even worse, I call him the snowman's ticket. This is so ridiculous. So you can add this absurdity to the long list of Bendis machinations at DC. The aging up of John Kent, the uh, the fiasco of the 31st century. Add now the, I mean, the the, the revelation of the secret identity, the, uh, of, uh, and now, now you've got Lat Lois Lane having a brother. 
who's got the powers, who's who's got who suddenly he's got Nightwing abilities in terms of prowess and everything else, and and Leviathan shows up at the end and he he wants to take care of this of this himself, the snowman's ticket, and meanwhile, meanwhile. Leo Lean tells us tells Lois that by the way Talia or Steve Trevor are the people that are betraying you, but we still don't know what's going on. I, I we we still know all we know is Leviathan wants to take over the Heroes Network, which is the computer network system that connects the Justice League with the Fortress of Solitude, with the Bat Cave, with the various Heroes headquarters, all are, the Heroes Network. I guess he wants to to do all that, and I'm I'm not really sure what the end game is here. I can't impress upon readers enough to avoid this series like the plague it's on the surface while it might sound interesting ultimately this just gives me a headache this is so insulting to the character of lois lane to the mythology of lois lane uh and i'm so pissed off what pisses me off the most is the fact that Dennis is making making this guy look like john kent that you know she, she actually says dear lord you look exactly like my son so now, now John Kent has an uncle, apparently, that looks exactly like him. I don't know why that annoys me so much, but it's just like, it's, all I see is the, is the, is the, is the self-pretentious BS that is Bendis once again coming through on this page and it doesn't feel organic. It feels forced. It feels pathetic. It feels ridiculous in a story that serves no one, in a story that should, that should have come out months ago. This is a disorganized mess, and you know I'm sorry. My rant is done. Yeah, we're definitely on the same page. Um, I, I don't even know what, what to say here. The story—it's it, bad enough. It's a terrible comic. You know, technically, put the pacing, timing. You know, maybe we can't lay all the timing um, at the feet of Bendis and blame him for that with how it doesn't make sense with the way it fits in the, with the rest of the DCU because it got delayed. Um, maybe it was Malieve, who, who knows? Um, but, but leaving that aside, it's just not a good comic. Uh, not when they're telling you what's happening instead of showing you. So many times I've heard Bendis say that, that in his mind, Lois Lane is the best character, the, the most heroic character, the epitome of, of, what it means to be a hero and self-sacrifice just you know one of the best characters in dcu and yeah this is how he treats her it's completely disrespectful and i don't have anything else to say otherwise i'm going to climb up on a soapbox as well so we're just going to move on but yeah it, it it's a terrible terrible comic terrible series and in my mind the biggest mistake that dc's made in the last i don't know maybe 20 years is giving Ben to Superman. Yeah. It's, it's infected more. It's more than just aging up John Kent. It's, it's affected the whole line. You know, I've, I've said so many times, so goes Superman. So goes the, the whole of DC. Like yeah. Batman might be the most popular character. might be the one that sells the most books, pays the bills. Um, you know, it's, he's the gas. Superman's the engine that makes DC go. And when Superman comics are, are popular and they're selling well and, and they're telling good stories, it seems like that's when you get the best eras of, of DC. Um, and you, you blew it with Bendis, like such a terrible, terrible mistake, letting him come over and mess with Superman. When it was so good with Tomasi and Gleason and Jer uh, Dan Jurgens, 
Yeah. Just a terrible mistake. Although I will say Philip uh, Kennedy Johnson is doing a good, better job with action comics. And I'm, I, I think that he's finally finding his stride. I just want to throw that in. No, he's doing a, He's doing a great job. A uh, little yeah. bit of a bumpy start, but he's doing a great job now. And, but unfortunately there's a big hole to dig out of, you know, and you <laughs> yeah. still got an aged up John Kent holding you down like a giant anchor anchor around your neck, cement boots. Uh, anyway, on to another miniseries that just started. Um, again, James Tynan is the writer. Uh, this is something he's been working toward for a while. I sort of wish he decided to stay on Batman instead of doing this, but maybe not if we were going to get as good Batman ideas. But anyway, it's written by James Tynan and Matthew Rosenberg. The art and the colors are by Otto Schmidt, lettered by Tom Napolitano. It's DC versus vampires. And we have Andrew Bennett shows up. Longtime DC readers will know him as I Vampire, either from the New 52 series or back in House of Mystery, written by uh, the legendary Jerry Conway back in the day. Um, so he shows up and kind of gives us the groundwork here, and, and then we move on from there. Um, it's Otto Schmidt art, but it's not as clean as Otto Schmidt art typically is, and I imagine he's doing that on purpose because it's a horror book. But I got to say, I wasn't like normally I'm all in on the Otto Schmidt art, especially his green arrow run. It was, was fantastic. I didn't enjoy his art here as much as I normally do. Um, but again, I, I'm not, not sure if he's, he's doing that on, on purpose. There's especially a bunch of pages where it's colored kind of monochromatically in red um, to show danger, I guess where the art was just a little muddy for my, my taste. But um, as far as the story goes, I mean, it's okay. It sort of suits, Tynan, you know, he, he does love his horror. Uh, he's a good horror writer. But between Deceased and Marvel Dark Age uh, and now DC versus Vampires, we've had, we've had Marvel zombies before. Like These sort of mashups to me are, you know, of, of typical superhero with sort of classic villains, whether they be uh, zombies or in this case vampires. They're sort of played out in my mind, you know, especially because we just had deceased. That being said, it is an, an interesting story. It's constructed well, and it was compelling. And I am interested in reading the, the second um, issue. So as much as I, I like when I saw this, I was like, uh, and I heard about it, I wasn't excited for it. And I knew I had to read it and I wasn't looking forward to it. But, you know, credit to Tynan and, and Rosenberg for crafting an interesting tale because it, they have hooked me somewhat. I'm, I'm mildly interested in in what's going on uh i'm not all in yet i wouldn't say uh it didn't grab me that much but uh it was it, it didn't feel cliched and and like oh my god we just had this with deceased and you know maybe it's the bringing back i vampire andrew bennett who's sort of a not even a b-list character probably c or d list character um but he's a classic DC character. So I appreciated seeing him show up. So maybe that's what had, has me uh, interested. So uh, yeah, I, th I think if you, if you like vampires, if you like horror uh, or, you, or you like superhero horror mashups, or if you were a big fan of deceased, you're probably going to like this because it, it has sort of that same tone uh, of deceased. So what did you think Rocky? Uh, I I really enjoyed this. I agree with you about Otto Schmidt. Uh, Otto Schmidt, uh, I loved his art when 
when he drew Future State Catwoman, I thought his art there was much more fuller and his backgrounds were better and it was it just came together better than it does here. But there maybe it's because this is definitely uh, this has a horror element feel to it dealing with vampires. It kind of, it does kind of work here. So even though it's a little bit sloppy in parts, uh, Otto Schmidt's art still it still manages to fulfill its duties uh, well enough that I could, I quite enjoyed this. I. I love that this involves the full DC universe. And even though this issue deals primarily with just Andrew Bennett having a conversation with Green Lantern and Zan of the Wonder Twins, of all things, this actually works. I love the idea that, uh, the, you know, Mary, Queen of Blood, a former lover of Andrew Bennett of I Vampire, she gets killed and murdered. And in looking for the murderer, Andrew Bennett stumbles upon a, a vampire conspiracy whereby they're taking over. They, they've, they've killed the Legion of Doom and they can, they, they, they can hide in plain sight. And the, the reveal here is so well played. I almost don't want to ruin it for people because I want them to read it. But I got to tell you, man. I don't like the Wonder Twins. I hate the Wonder Twins. And what <laughs> happens to Zan in this issue, I want to spoil it so bad, but I kind of don't want to. I want people to, let's just say that after my Bendis rant and Bendis has brought the Wonder Comics and the Wonder Twins back, the fate of Zan in this issue with the blender scene, I got to tell you, and what, what Hal Jordan says while sipping his smoothie is the best line I've read in a comic in well over a month. And I don't want to, I won't even spoil it, but it's so goddamn good. I, this is, this was a guilty pleasure to read. I, I really like this. And this is set in its own universe. I have my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, Jace, that, uh, uh, Tinian and both Tinian and Rosenberg, I think it was Matthew Rosenberg's email in particular hinted that they, they can actually kill. Uh, characters off in this series and they will be doing that because it's out of continuity so this is something where there's actual stakes uh there's actual gravitas there's actual stakes there's no lazarus serum resin that's going to come back and resolve bring back the you're dead here you're probably going to stay dead more or less at least that's what i'm expecting i love this story here i enjoyed the dialogue i like the fact that these are vampires that they can hide in plain sight and they can hide their teeth and they're even immune a little bit uh, to the sunlight so they, they can hide literally in plain sight and they're protected from ultraviolet rays through ways which can be explained in the story through various characters. There There's misdirection here. This opening issue was so well played by Tinian and Rosenberg that if you don't, I, I encourage people when you read this, don't spoil it by, by skipping ahead in the issue. Read it from, from the each page and take your time reading it. Get into this story. It's it's well done. The flashbacks with uh, with the, in the Legion of Doom scenes with the red background. I criticize Wonder Girl for having all these overly green and orange cheating palettes with the coloring. Here it actually works with pages of just red because you can. Uh, uh, this is a vampire comic, so this red tinge to the entire page as as Andrew Bennett is trying to escape from the from the Legion of Doom headquarters to to warn the Justice League. Uh, it really does work and it works very well. And of course, ultimately at that, that final page where finally we get Batman on the play and that, that, that letter of warning written by Andrew Bennett. I mean, you couldn't get, you, you couldn't get a more perfect person to read that letter because uh, as all DC fans know, we all know what, we all know that Batman is one paranoid person, but sometimes the best person 
that you can have on your side is a paranoid Batman because that's what Andrew Bennett needs. And so this, this issue ends with the right hero reading that letter. And it's going to be very interesting to see what Batman does with the information he receives by Andrew Bennett at the end of this issue. And, and I've managed not to spoil much of the best points of this issue. I've just hinted at them. And I thought this was a joy. This was my favorite of the week by far. And, um, yeah, so that's all I got to say about that. Yeah, so you like the line about the smoothie being watery. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah man. Was... I love it. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty good. That was awesome. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that was – I agree I agree with a lot of what, what you said here. And and as far as it being out of continuity, yeah, I mean, very similar to Deceased in that way, like I mentioned. Um, you know, so it gives them the freedom to do whatever they want to do. So looking forward to it. Uh, all right, on to the last book that we're going to talk about in detail. It's Aquaman, The Becoming, number two, from uh, Brandon Thomas. He handles the writing. Diego Orlatuga and Skylar Partridge do the pencils. Wade Von Grobiger and Skylar Partridge on inks. Adriana Lucas on colors and rural design on letters. So, uh, again, Aquaman, Arthur Curry is, is off the t- table. So in Aquaman, The Becoming, uh, issue two of six, it's all about uh, Jackson Hyde coming uh, into his own and and taking up that title of of Aquaman. Uh, again, this is the writer who did such an incredible job on Future State Aquaman, Brandon Thomas. We had him on the show to to talk about it and uh, sort of the the prelude to that, I suppose you could say. So, what did you think of this issue, Rocky? I I, I thought this issue had a, was a lot. Uh... I thought uh, writer Brandon Thomas took a curious approach to this issue uh, because I didn't find that a heck of a lot happens here, but it it almost plays out like I'm watching the beginning of like a, like a thriller, like a, like maybe an episodic thriller on uh, like some sort of, like I was watching this on a, on a Netflix uh, episodic basis because it was, it's weird how, I mean, the first issue ended with Jackson Hyde being attacked by Atlantean policemen, essentially Atlantean forces, accusing him of being some sort of traitor. And then here he escapes and he doesn't know why he's being attacked. And then all of a sudden it switches gears. This particular issue is called Until Proven Innocent. So obviously he's being assumed to be guilty until proven innocent by the Atlantean forces. Uh, Jackson Hyde is, a, he's from, he, he's a Xabelian. He's from Xabel which is an Atlantean colony, which was a long lost Atlantean colony that ultimately uh, separated from from Atlantic Atlantis. And now it's come back. And and Mira is in this issue as well. And Mira, of course, is also uh, is also from Zabel. And well, don't forget it was a, it was a, originally established as a penal colony. It's where they sent their prisoners. Ah, that's right. That's right. Thank you. So that makes a lot of sense. So there's a lot of prejudice against Zebelians by Atlanteans, and they, they generally, they look down upon Zebelians. And so there's a lot of Atlanteans apparently that look down upon Jackson Hyde. And so the fact that might they might readily assume that he's guilty of some traitorous activity that we don't know what he's accused of yet, that's not surprising. This uh, I like what Brandon how Brandon Thomas structures this issue. He he plays. He starts off forty three minutes after the escape. It shows Mira waking up, being confronted by Atlantean policemen that take it upon themselves to force themselves into her domain and bombard her with questions about where Jackson Hyde is. And through the course of the narrative, 
it's actually a very good, it's an interesting interrogation scene where the interrogators themselves, Brandon Thomas really, he, he finds a, uh, I found, found it odd that he chose to spend so much time on the interrogation scene, particularly in a comic book that's supposed to be about Aquaman and about Jackson Hyde. Jackson Hyde doesn't spend a lot of time in this issue. This is an issue that focuses quite a bit on Mira, which I found surprising. Uh, not that that's a bad thing. Mira and little Andy are given some attention and Mira, uh, it's ultimately revealed that Mira does in fact know exactly where Jackson Hyde is. And, but you you don't know that because of the way that Brandon Tom, Thomas uh, cleverly scripts the narrative and transitions the scenes. I think it works very well. Mira uh, plays, you know, she She's an excellent actress. She plays the two Atlantean uh, interrogators like violins. She She's masterful. I mean, you can tell she's been maybe interrogated before. And she's no pushover. Mira here is quite kick-ass. And she's, uh, she, she knows what she's doing. And she's buying Jackson Hyde a lot of time so he can escape. And so, uh, because he's been beat up, so he... It's revealed that he showed up on Mira's basically doorstep earlier and Mira's trying to buy Jackson Hyde some time so he can escape and recover. And I think Jackson Hyde ultimately attempts to go to his mother's place, who is um, his mother being uh, Lady Lucia, who is uh, uh, I actually never knew much about Jackson Hyde's mother, but I guess she's Lady Lucia and somebody's targeting Jackson Hyde's mother as well. And uh, now... Why are they attacking her? It's not sure. Whatever Jackson Hyde is accused of, Lady Lucia, his mother, might be accused of the same thing. Clearly, somebody is trying to set up uh, Jackson Hyde as being a scapegoat for some nefarious activity. We don't know what that is yet. This entire issue was just to establish the fact that Jackson Hyde is being hunted and Mira and Andy are being interrogated. Uh, and, uh, there's a great scene. I, I love the, the motorcycle. There's a high, there's a little motorcycle with a, with a little sidecar where Mira's is in the sidecar and Mira with her flowing red hair is driving this motorcycle. It looks actually pretty cool. Like I, I kind of chuckled when I saw it. I'd like to have a little dinky car like that to give my daughter to play with. Actually, it looks kind of cool the way that it's so rendered on the page by artist Diego Alategua and Skylar Patridge, um, Adrian and Lucas on the colors, Beautiful colors, very well done in the art. Um, it's revealed here that I guess Davy, or that I think that waitress, that the part of the waitress, <laughs> the waiter in the first issue that was attracted to Jackson was that Davy or Davy? Was that that same yeah, guy? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, because I, I apparently he's Lady Lucia. He lives with Lady Lucia, uh, which is interesting. But in any event, so you can see all the pieces coming into play within the first two issues here. And ultimately, it's revealed that Jackson Hyde is sort of slowly bleeding to death on a boat that he managed to put him uh, escape onto. But um, uh, yeah, so not a heck of a lot happens. This is just Jackson Hyde running away from and, and trying to trying to, you know, escape the Atlantean police that are looking for him. So story wise, not a lot happened. But I really like how how writer Brandon Thomas uh, structured this issue and scripted it. It was in, it was an entertaining read. It was fast paced. It, it was adventurous. We got uh, we got a lot of agency shown by Mira, and even Andy had her moment. Young Andy had her moments. Lady Lucia had her moments. We got kick ass moments for everyone, from Jackson Hyde to Mira to Lady Lucia, and even Andy had some good dialogue there. <laughs> and uh, anyways, uh, I I enjoyed it, but again, doesn't really move the story forward all that much. 
but it was it was a joy to read, but it didn't move the story all that much. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you, but I think that that's exactly what Brandon Thomas was intending and sort of what the story needed. So to, to go back to something I said earlier about how you need some issues where things move at a slower pace or there aren't the big giant reveals, you know, you need some valleys so that the peaks are, uh, there's contrast. So I think this issue added a lot of context in terms of, you know, putting that forefront, being reminded as a reader that there is that prejudice against uh, people who are from Zabel, Zabelians, and the fact that it was a, a, you know, a penal colony at one point and how Atlanteans tend to look down their nose, talking about Lady Lucia, about how there is, uh, even within Zabel itself, a schism. There, there is a, a rebellion there in underground. They don't agree that the leadership of Zabel sort of doesn't get along politically with Atlantis. And, and you know, there are those that want to reconcile that relationship. Uh, learning about Jackson's mother, um, learning about, you know, how much Mira cares for Jackson and, and the context of do they... St- even though she was queen, even though she was leader, especially when Arthur Curry Aquaman was uh, thought to be dead, they had full faith in her, established her as queen and gave her all the respect. She was sort of the legacy character, the, the link that they still had to Aquaman, their beloved king. Um, but even so, even so, and, and with Arthur and Mira voluntarily, don't forget that, voluntarily dissolving the monarchy of Atlantis for a more democratic form of governance there, there's still some deep-seated mistrust of Mira simply because she's Zebelian. Despite all she's done, despite all the sacrifices, she's sided with Atlantis in the past in battles against Zebel, and you know, and still there's that deep-seated trust. So a lot of context here, a lot of foundational stuff that I'm sure will come back into play later on in the series. So you're right, we didn't get a lot of answers to the questions that we got presented to us in that very fast-paced issue number one. But I think the context and the foundations that were laid here by Brandon Thomas in the second issue were very, very necessary. And uh, in terms of the art, fantastic, very much a political issue where you don't have a lot of action and it can tend to be boring because it's sort of a talking head issue. Uh, but I think Orla Tuga and, uh, and Partridge did a great job of of still keeping it interesting, moving the camera around, uh, great expressions. You can see the, the page, if you're watching us on YouTube, the page that Rocky has up right here, like that bottom panel of, of Mira, you can just tell, you know, the emotion that she has in her face. She's not happy. So uh, this is fantastic. I love what Brandon Thomas is doing. And what a contrast, like what a, what a kind of feather in the cap for Brandon, who uh, is an incredibly talented writer. And we really enjoyed having him on, on the show. Uh, and his excellent series over and, and Horizon series, both at Image have, uh, that we've read in the past, have been great. But yeah. here he's got two different Aquaman titles out today. You know, one with Green Arrow, Aquaman, Green Arrow t- team up. This one focusing more on Jackson Hyde, even though he didn't, he wasn't the highlight of the story. It was more of a mirror issue. But two Aquaman, fundamentally two Aquaman series, but yet so radically different trying to do two completely different things and tell two completely different types of stories, not only different stories, but different types of stories. And he nails both of them. So fantastic job. Uh, Kudos to, uh, to Brandon for uh, a great job. So, uh, all right. I I think you already said that your favorite 
book of the week was the DC Vampires. Is that? Ah, uh, yeah, that's right. That's exactly yeah. right. Uh, let me take a quick peek at the whole list here. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think I, I think I got to go with, uh, with Task Force Z. Um, <laughs> only because both the Aquaman books were so good, I can't really pick between one of them. So I'll go in a completely different direction and I'll go with Task Force Z. Um, you know, there was one, uh, a couple other books that, that are coming out today that we didn't talk about. Uh, Ruby Justice League number seven, and there's also Batman the Long Halloween Special number one uh, that are uh, coming out today uh, as well. So I, I don't know that we need to really think too long and hard about our worst books of the week. <laughs> well, uh, well uh, mine is uh, Checkmate 5. I mean... Checkmate yeah. five is by far my, my worst, but yeah, it's, it's a pretty easy choice this week. Um, I don't think anything else is, I mean, there's some other stuff that was kind of average, maybe slightly below average, but there's nothing that's, there's nothing that can, is just an out and out bad comic except for <laughs> checkmate number five. It's been a bad series. I, there's one issue left, right? I can't wait till that's over yeah. and done with. And it just, uh, it's the gift that keeps on giving in a terrible way, reminding us of <laughs> everything that was wrong with Bendis and his Superman run. So uh, anyway, that's going to do it for this episode, everybody. As always, I'll remind you, if you're listening to us on the audio only podcast, be sure you head over to YouTube, do a search for comic boom. That's comic space boom with an exclamation, give Rocky's channel uh, a subscription, ring that notification bell. So, you know, when uh, new content is coming out and be sure to give this episode uh, a thumbs up. Conversely, if you're checking us out on YouTube and you want to listen to any of the other uh, comic source co content we put out, like our spoiler-free New Comic Book Wednesday episodes, uh, be sure you head over to your favorite smart device and give us a subscription on whatever podcast platform you use, whether it's a podcast app or you know Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify. Uh, we're on all of them. So uh, we appreciate your support, as always, and uh, the comments and the engagement on social media from all you guys and the comments in the, the section below here on YouTube. Uh, we wouldn't do this if you guys weren't out there uh, enjoying it. So uh, as always, we appreciate the support and we'll talk to you next time. See you later. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening and we'll talk to you next time.